hope you're hungry. The table is set. Join us for another cosmic feast. Randy! Randy, get up! Someone's at the door. Randy! I'm not awake. You're awake. Get the door. Please get the door. It's the middle of the night. Who is it? I'll be right behind you, Maggie. (gasps) Just get the door. Oh, fine. Okay. May I use your phone? My husband. Talk to my husband. Who the hell is that? I don't know. He doesn't seem right. He's in all black. He has hair on his face. Don't open it, Randy. Don't go out there. Don't. I'm not. I'll, I'll just tell him to leave. Um, we ain't got a phone here. And thus begins The Mothman, part one. Uh, welcome to Cosmic Feast. I'm your host, David. And this is your wonderful, wonderful host, Sydney. Um, Hey. This is the quintessential book. It is the greatest book. It is the coolest book. Um, we are very excited to cover it. Um, our headlines for today include The Devil in West Virginia, Connie's Pink Eye, Jack Brown's Dog and Pony Show, Supernatural Fallouts of World War II, and The Many Faces of the Headless Bird Guy Man. So this book is by John Keel. Uh, have you ever seen the um, the movie, The Mothman Prophecies? I have not. No. It's uh, it, who's in that? It's Richard Gere at his finest. Ah, yes. It's legit a good. I know Richard, Richard Gere, Gere from film. Chicago. <laughs> oh yeah, well, that's also Richard Gere at his finest. <laughs> Richard Gere is mad random. His movies are so random. They're ran- yeah, random. Yeah, he plays a lot AF. of different characters. Yeah, he does. I remember yeah. I saw a movie of his once where it was like, um, like he was like this. It was like this thriller that came out a few years ago where he was like, there was like some. All I remember is there was a car explosion and Richard Gere was good. It was a good actor in it, <laughs> and that's that's about all I remember from movies. But but the Mothman is exciting. Richard Gere basically plays the John Keel character. For those of you that don't know, um, John Keel is one of the most famous uh, researchers of the UFO phenomenon. Uh, he's covered other things, obviously, like the Mothman um, and other mysteries. Uh, you'll see why it's not really, they're not really separate things. John Keel believes that there is a connection between a lot of supernatural phenomenon, and that is the genius of John Keel is that John Keel didn't in the sixties when he was reporting, um, he didn't stop at the nuts and bolts aspect of the phenomenon. So he didn't accept that they were just people from outer space. He was like, well, why are they showing up around Bigfoot? Why are they, why is there a Mothman showing up right around the time that UFOs are short showing up? And plus he was like, he's an avid reader. If you read any of his books, um, you will fall in love with John Keel. You might, it might be dangerous for your relationship because you will legit fall in love with John Keel. Don't read this book, Sydney. You will fall in love with John Keel and it'll ruin everything. Oh, no. It'll ruin no. all your plans. I want you to be happy, Sydney. 
So is that what happened to you? You fell in love with John Keel because of that book that you read that, that gave you, uh, what was our term? Epistemological shock. Yeah, I mean. It, I, it rocked your world. It did. <laughs> he rocked He rocked my socks off. Um, what book was that? That was not this book, right? That was the uh, Operation Trojan Horse. Uh, I, I, you know, of course, I went for 1970. This book was written in 1975. So, of course, I went, the first book of his I read, I read his freaking uh, like scientific Bible of UFO investigation. And it's so big. It's so daunting. That book and another book have been two of the hardest books I've ever had to read because it was so long. It's full of so many, a lot of science, a lot of reports, a lot of cases. But that is when I was like, his, actually that book is one of the first books where I'm like, okay, UFOs are not bullshit. Like this is this, there is something to this 100% because there's a level of trust involved with a researcher and a quote unquote scientist, right? I mean, you you trust a researcher to basically use a scientific method of reporting stuff and researching stuff. You have to, we have to, and even in our society at this point, we're trusting like YouTube celebrities with information. Like we're, we're, we're putting our trust in much lesser people than John Keel. And John Keel is somebody (laughs) whom once you read his stuff, you're like, oh, okay, I can trust this guy. This guy did his homework. He's saying that a lot of stuff is bullshit. There's a percentage of the cases that have patterns, and we'll go into that a little more. But this book starts with him, um, with him. Well, it starts. The, so, so here's the thing: the conversation that just occurred, that wasn't us, obviously. That was real. We captured that conversation. That was absolutely, yeah, it real. was one hundred percent. I don't even know how we were able to get that that footage. I don't know what you just audio audio footage. It, it actually, I think it was a phone voicemail. Like they accidentally called yeah. me on the phone that they told that guy they didn't have, and exactly, you know, they were we like, just I, I received the recording. This might be <laughs> useful to you. Um, <laughs> so three weeks after that conversation happened between, I made up their names, Brandy and Maggie. Um, that couple was dead. Three weeks after that, that couple was actually dead. Uh, they, oh, no. They were among the victims of the Silver Bridge collapse on the Ohio River in West Virginia. Um, their, f- oh, wow. their friends remembered the story of a bearded stranger whom and, – and a lot of their friends agreed that basically this was like the devil coming to – like an omen presenting itself to to them right before they were going to die. Um and it was like it was the legend of Beelzebub. Keel says had visited West. Beelzebub, yeah. Beelzebub, uh, had no Beelzebub. Beelzebub. <laughs> yeah, is, there you go. Is that how you say it? Be- yeah, a, Beelzebub. Well, that's a beautiful. Because my instinct is to be like Beelzebub. Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. <laughs> say that three times fast. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> I don't even want to say Beelzebub three times. So, um, yeah, no, you know, in, in like Queens, Bohemian Rhapsody, they go, Beelzebub is a devil, what's a fight for me? That thing, yeah, I do not, but I, that is very cool. I, I would, yeah, Beelzebub, Queen is cool. So, okay, so, so who is Beelzebub? Here's the, do you know? Here's the catch the catch, or well, who is that entity itself? It's a demon that's in. Uh, it's basically another name for Satan. Yeah, yeah. So he's just like the the physical form of Satan that we can see that kind of like 
haunts around and can take the forms of other people. Um, there's a lot of stories like that where like, uh, you know, Beelzebub will come in the form of like a homeless man and come to your door and ask for like a warm blanket and a place to sleep. And if you deny them, then like that's how Satan takes you and kills you. That's very interesting. So, so, but that ties right into this. The reason he uses that reference, he killed doesn't use things accidentally. He so so. There's there are legends. What culture are those legends a thing? Yeah, no. There there's been um, plenty of stories about Beelzebub uh, taking the form of like a homeless man and coming to people's doors and uh, like asking for a warm blanket and a place to sleep. And if they deny him that then like they they go to hell or whatever like they die soon after um because that's the way that satan can tell if you're like a truly good person or not so even if it's something you don't want to do but you're doing for the better of someone else and and you know like then he will grant you um i guess permission to continue living <laughs> if, if you let the homeless man stay like, um, or give him a blanket yeah he's like dang these people are too good they must remain on earth He'll, he'll get really frustrated. He'll be like, no, I don't want to watch TV. No, I don't want a warm bath. No, I don't need money. Yeah. I don't need money. Leave me alone. Well, it, there's a lot of cool stuff about Beezle, Be, Beezlebub. Um, Beelzebub. Beelzebub. <laughs> it's a name derived from a Philistine god worshipped in Ekron. Anyway, so it also says he's one of the seven princes of hell. I want to know who the other six are. Who are those guys? Oh. Um, it's in the Testament of Solomon. This is making me think of Sabrina. Do you watch the Sabrina, the Teenage Witch show? Like the adventure, the chilling adventures of Sabrina? The new one? No. Yeah. I tried, but no. They talk about all that kinds of stuff um, because she's the daughter of, well, spoiler alert, <laughs> She's the daughter of Satan. So you learn about all the different princes of hell, or at least one of them. She ends up marrying. Another spoiler sure, alert. Ah! I mean, well, they need to do the research for that TV show. But let's discuss the fact that this was not the Satan. I'm going to stop pronouncing the right. word. This was not Satan. This was actually John Keel, whose car had broken down. So John Keel was giving a UFO speech in Atlanta, Georgia, he had visited West Virginia about five times. He was investigating a series of strange events, and he had friends there. One of them was Mary Heyer, the star reporter of the Athens, Ohio Messenger newspaper. Um, they were out talking to witnesses that night, a few weeks before the bridge collapse, uh, about UFOs. Uh, they saw a strange light in the sky. They um, There was a low layer of cloud out there, and there were no stars visible. So, And this thing was just moving around. Like, like nothing else can move around. It was emitting a brilliant glow. And this is something that happened a lot in the Ohio Valley um, that year. So they were out investigating. Miss Heyer was actually in the car in the mud. The car had broken down and they were going house to house to try to use someone's phone. And because wow. people were not used to seeing like, like somebody with a beard dressed nicely in this, at this point in time, like for some reason, I guess beards were not as popular uh, and, or maybe they weren't as pop. He goes into this whole thing about beards, but um, <laughs> Kiel had a beard. Kiel was dressed in black and he freaks some people out. Uh, a lot of the telephones. I kind of picture him like 
looking like a pirate or something. Like, I don't know. The name John Keel with a beard. Like, I'm just like, arr. He looks like a more, instead of a pirate, he looks like more like a beatnik a little bit. But he, but he dressed really nice, apparently. Or at least huh. he was, he was, or he was on his way to a catering gig or something. A well-dressed beatnik. Yeah. A well-dressed <laughs> beatnik. Exactly. So he kind of plays with this idea that maybe this is, this is how, uh, like myths and legends can happen, right? You're you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. It, you, people see your your strange visit connected to other strange events, and they say it's Satan visited them right before the bridge collapse. However, there is a ton of weird stuff that does happen around this bridge collapse, and that is where this book takes us. Friday, December twenty second, nineteen sixty seven. In Point Pleasant, there are Christmas decorations strung all along Main Street. They're hung sadly, and the lights are reflecting off the faces of tired and worn people. Um, Tired and worn people trying not to look at the hole where the Silver Bridge used to be. It's a 700-foot bridge that collapsed. They're still finding bodies bloated, white bodies floating to the surface of the river. A few yards from where the bridge had been, Mary Heyer sits at her office. She's looking over a list of the missing and the known dead. She's a stout woman in her early 50s. She had had almost no sleep for the past seven days. That afternoon, two men entered. They almost seemed like twins. They're both short, wearing black overcoats. Their complexions were dark, somewhat oriental, she thought. We hear there's been a lot of flying saucer activity around here. Yeah, we have had quite a few sightings here. She responded, turning in her chair to pull open a filing cabinet. The bridge collapse was on everyone's mind for the last week. Flying saucers were the furthest thing from her mind. She hauled out a bulging folder with clippings of sighting reports and handed it to one of the men. He opened it. He gave the pile a cursory glance and handed it back. Has anyone told you not to publish these reports? She shook her head as she shoved the folder back in the drawer. What would you do if someone did order you to stop writing about flying saucers? I'd tell him to go to hell. She smiled wanly. Later that afternoon, another stranger walks into Miss Hire's office. He was slightly built, about five feet, seven inches tall, with black, piercing eyes, unruly black hair. And if he'd had a brush cut It was just growing back in. His complexion was even darker than that of the previous visitors, and he looked Korean or Oriental. His hands were especially unusual, she thought, with unduly long, tapering fingers. He wore a cheap, ill-fitting black suit. It was slightly out of fashion. His tie was knotted in an old-fashioned way. He was wearing an overcoat. He wasn't wearing an overcoat despite the fierce cold outside. My name is Jack Brown, he announced in a hesitant manner. I'm a UFO researcher. After a brief, almost incoherent struggle to discuss UFO sightings, Brown stammered. What would, what would you do if someone ordered, ordered you to stop, to stop printing UFO stories? Say, are, are you with those two men who were here earlier? 
she asked, surprised to hear the same weird question in one day. No, no, I'm alone. I'm a friend of Gray, Gray Barker. Gray Barker of Clarksburg was West Virginia's best known UFO investigator. Do you know John Keel? His face tightened. I, I, I used to think the world of Keel. Then a few minutes ago, I, I bought a, a, a magazine. He has an article in it. He says he's seen UFOs himself. He's, he's a liar. I know he's seen things. I've been with him when he saw them. Brown smiled weakly at the success of his simple gambit. Could, could you take me out? Take me out where you and Keel saw things? I'm not going to do anything except go home to bed. Is, is Keel and Point Pleasant? No. He lives in New York. I think he... Mm, mm, makes up these stories. Look, I can give you the names of some people here who have seen things. You can talk to them and decide for yourself, but I can't just escort you around. Mary said wearily. I'm a friend of Gray Barker, he repeated lamely. So these things are happening after the bridge collapse. You have strange men with dark complexions, oriental looking. This is this is a key. And none of these men are John Keel at this point, right? These They're are not, gonna not like John up, Keel. Oh, he shaved his beard. <laughs> no, these are not John Keel. Uh, John Keel doesn't look like this. He doesn't have long, thin fingers. He doesn't. These people are are like. There's something like wrong with them. Like there's. They're not. They're not human, kind of. They're not like right the, with like the odd tie and yeah, they the have odd things. And, like and and the way that you can kind of suspect that they're not human, it's like as if they had like a week to pretend. There, it's like it's like they got an assignment and they were like store blob in like sector nine <laughs> of another dimension, and they were just like they got thrown into the the lottery to like go down to Earth. And start some shit about John Keel, and like they have to go down there, and they have to fit inside this little like man suit, and they have to pretend like they know how to be a man. They procrastinated all week. They 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 failed all their exams in terms of how to pretend That's very, to be a like, man. Very like Men in Black. That's what it's making right? me think of. <laughs> sugar water, you know, like sugar. <laughs> <laughs> that's burned into all of our minds for that movie. But yeah, but but that's a good example because that's an alien wearing human skin, and that is exactly what this seems like. Unless it's some kind of a robot, unless it's not even a man, it's like literally some some phantom. But they're they're physical in this situation, and I think that's the key of these particular men in black. They are physical. Entities, they're physical right. beings. They're bipedal, but what are they exactly? You know, um, and what is and what is happening in terms of the UFO phenomenon in the area? What, what, what you'll see when we get to the uh, you when we get to our protagonist of the book that John Keel basically states he's like, I am not interested 
in the manifestations of the phenomenon. I am pursuing the source of the phenomenon itself. He says, to do this, I have objectively divorced myself from all the popular frames of reference. I'm not concerned with the beliefs, but with the cosmic mechanism which has generated and perpetuated those beliefs. I feel like that's suggesting that all unearthly beings come from one place, though, if he's trying to find the root to the phenomenon. like I don't know if he is saying that exactly, because that's like the biggest generalization, right? That, that would like right. Bigfoot, the Mothman, aliens, reptilians, they're all part of the same. Imagine, it's like- Brothers! But what he is suggesting- and and it's and I can't really state it now because I haven't earned it, and Keel hasn't earned it with our listeners. But like, what he is suggesting is that there is, we are not the most intelligent beings on Earth. There are things that are very intelligent. There are things that are very intelligent that could have been here from the beginning of mankind. Right, because there have been stories, and he goes into it in detail. We might go into it more the next uh, part two, but basically, he goes into how it's shown up in the Bible. Uh, these these entities, these uh, UFOs, have shown up throughout history, like in in the Bible and cave paintings. You have all of these manifestations. It used to be angels. It used to be men in black horse and carriages. Now it's Men coming out of, then in the 1800s, it was men coming out of blimps saying, hey, you got another wrench over there? Would you mind if I had a glass of water? What's your name? (laughs) My name is Brown, you know? My name is Smith. Like, oh, my name doesn't matter, chum, you know? And then they just disappear. (laughs) Like, what he's kind of getting at is, and there's a couple different metaphors that I like, but the one I'll start with is just like, this is a puppet show. This is a cosmic puppet show. And whatever intelligence is controlling the puppet show, like they have many little puppets on their fingers. They can they can show up in different ways. And those different ways are related to whatever we believe at the time. They're they're taking information directly from our minds. They're able to they're able to like manifest in front of us and disappear in front of us. Like they just have this ability to to shapeshift in a way, but Hmm. what is the intelligence behind it? What is the intention behind it? Because one of the most interesting things that you'll see in this episode is that the men in black, these are a lot of the men in black, like the actual men in black. And these sightings of these people, and there's actually other sightings too, where they pretend to be government agents and stuff. They're not, they're they're almost trying to perpetuate, and they successfully perpetuated this belief that there were government agents trying to hide a physical UFO conspiracy all throughout the, the land. So it's almost like they mm-hmm. wanted us to believe that the government was behind this that the government was trying to hide it. And instead they send like a bunch of awkward uh, weirdos, you know, like, I mean, I hate to call them weirdos, but they're. We say stuttering oddballs. (laughs) They're a little odd. Um, And men who pretend to be government agents who aren't very good at pretending. Um, 
Yeah. So, so we'll get into more of the theories of what he believes. I'm not going to leave it with like the puppet show or anything like that. But at the same time, I want to I want us to earn the the perspective that Keel has by by digging more into it. He says that. I mean, the the cosmic puppet show. It just it sounds so evil, nefarious. Like there's some bigger purpose that's like, uh, like what are they gonna do? Destroy Earth? Like I don't know. It just doesn't sound like a happy puppet show. It doesn't make me like want to buy tickets for my children. Imagine you're reading have, the description but. for this puppet show, and it says, uh, takes place on Earth. They're psychological <laughs> constructs. Keel says. They're momentary materializations of energy from that dimension beyond the reach of our senses, beyond the reach of scientific instruments. They are not from outer space. There is no need for them to be. They have always been here. Perhaps they were here long before we started bashing each other over the head with clubs, and they will undoubtedly be here long after we've incinerated our cities, polluted our waters, and rendered the atmosphere unbreathable. And if they have lives in the usual sense, their lives will be much duller when we're gone. Um, so I love that. I think that's so poetic. He's such a good writer. I mean, he's, he, yeah. he definitely has his, his, I mean, he's an amazing researcher and he has his moments of just. Uh, I got chills. Some, some really, really powerful writing. And I think that's what makes him such an effective author is that he's able to take this just way beyond just explaining it on the surface. Like he's able to like, like that is a very almost loving way to explain that there might have been, there might be something here that has always been here near us while we've been bashing each other over the head, you know? Um, (laughs) And for him, he's like, why don't we have astronomers studying this? Why don't we have people who study the earth who understand the earth better? Like you wouldn't hire a parachutist to go spelunking in a cave or hire a balloonist to go diving for treasure or a brain surgeon. You don't need a brain surgeon if you need to hire a horticulturist. I just don't know what that would look like, though. I can't imagine a geologist wanting to touch this subject, but maybe maybe we do need people that understand the mysteries of the earth more um, Yeah, because some of this might... My, or if it's from another dimension, who knows? Like we might need, we need, we need a, we need a room full of some pretty wacky people to figure this out. <laughs> they need to create a new uh, uh, major in colleges called like a multidimensionalist or something. That would be like. beautiful. <laughs> oh my god, that would be cool. <laughs> it would be cool. I, I major in multidimensionality, and I guess that goes along with like quantum theory and time hopping. But that that kind of sticks to the more like scientific level. But we're talking about like. Like you said, like more geological and anthropomorphic, anthropomorphical. Beautiful. <laughs> That's definitely not, not quite, most of a word. Yeah, definitely. Most of a word. Thank you. Beelzebub. But you're right. Those are the, <laughs> you're like, I know how to say this word, uh, buster. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but you're right though. Those are the disciplines that could really help. You know, if if we if we combine our minds, you know, you know, imagine a world where all the Earth people <laughs> studied UFOs. You know, <laughs> David's singing a duet with himself again. Yeah. I didn't get these lyrics, so I I can't <laughs> join in. Sorry. Imagine all <laughs> the people. 
Wait, so I think we need to back up. I feel like you, you, you talked about this bridge collapse, and I'm just like, wait, what bridge collapse? That's actually it. That's it for the whole show. So I, ho- I hope you were paying attention. Uh, well, no. Oh, Lord. This is what Rewind. We're, this is what we're going to do. We are going to talk to Connie Carpenter, who is Mrs. Hire's niece, and we are going to see what happened to her. And we will get to the Mothman by way of many, many stumbling paths of weirdness. We are going to get to the Mothman. And then in part two, we're going to cover the bridge collapse. So the bridge oh, wow. collapse. Okay, so we're having a lot of this place. leads up to the bridge collapse. Those two men in black stories are after. This is before. So 1966, right? Miss Hire's niece, Connie Carpenter. Uh, this is when John Keel, um, John Keel talks to her. He's just one of the first people that he talks to when he gets into town. And we'll cover when he gets into town later. But um, John Keel says that the second he sees Connie Carpenter, uh, he's he he just knows that she's telling the truth. Her eyes are red, watery, and almost swollen shut. Um, for those witnesses that are unlucky enough to encounter a UFO, this is a common problem that they have. They usually have a if they if usually if there's some kind of a dazzling, brilliant aerial light, you get exposed to. Uh, actinic actinic rays or basically ultraviolet rays which can cause eye burn medically known as some form of conjunctivitis so it is like pink eye oh wow really it is the pink eye that you get not in the knocked up fashion but in the (laughs) in the radiation fashion like if you're out in the sun too long apparently without sunglasses and just staring out a lot and getting a lot of sunlight in your eye, you could get this kind of pink eye. It's like an inflammation. No way. Yeah, it's an inflammation It's of like the, the sun is taking a poop in your eye. Basically, exactly. So maybe it is like knocked up and and those guys were right. But um, so the symptoms are redness, swelling of the eyes. I think a lot of us try not to think of pink eye and we think that by not thinking of it, we'll never get it. But if you look at pictures of it, or maybe that's just me, if you look at pictures of it. I had it when I was little, like six or something. Yeah. That's pretty common, I think. I don't know. And it's highly contagious. How did we get it when we were little? Because we don't know how to wipe our bosoms. Oh, that's our bottoms. so true. Well, this is, this is the sun butt. <laughs> Instead of the actual the butt sun butt, getting yeah. you. So. Or you know how like kids play in dirt and stuff? Yeah. They're probably touching wildlife fecal matter and getting it in their yeah. eyes and lots you know, of, whatever. Lots it's- of seagull poop involved in childhood. That's so true. So Well, I'm from the Midwest, so we didn't have any seagulls. But <laughs> I'm sure, you know, we had robins. <laughs> so some kind of a bird's squirrels. poop was involved. Or maybe it was right. some animal. But you're right. Little kids would have that. In this case, I didn't quite. Cow pie. <laughs> I didn't. A cow pie? I'm not even going to ask you what that is. I don't want to know what that is. <laughs> you don't know what a cow pie is? I'm guessing is? it's not a Where pie. Where are you from? I'm guessing it's not a delicious blueberry pie. <laughs> um, so, so this is just really interesting. Uh, because, like, we can just state the facts that, like, in a lot of UFO sightings, when they see a bright light, they get this horrible swelling in their eyes, redness, swelling. That's so, I think even yeah. in time storms, okay. we covered people getting getting this as well. It's from ultraviolet rays, um, and oh yeah, we talked about the the Mountain Dew um, 
fuzz, like the fuzzy Mountain Dew exactly. stuff if in the air. If you pour Mountain Dew in that your was hurting eye, people's eyes. You will get pink eye. Yeah. Um, no. no, no, no <laughs> oh, but okay, so kids, don't try this at home. <laughs> so there are literally thousands of cases of people that have gotten this UFO pink eye burn. Um, so like, okay, so let me give you an example. One of the most extreme cases of UFO blindness occurs Wednesday, October 3rd, 1973 <gasps> in Southeastern Missouri. Eddie Webb, 45 of Greenville. He sees a luminous object in his rear view mirror. He puts his hat out of the window uh, of his truck and looks back and there is a bright white flash. Webb throws his hands onto his face crying. Oh my God, I'm burned. I can't see. That was the worst acting. One lens. My eyes, my eyes. One lens. It's like gremlins when, when they're like, bright light, bright light. Exactly. That is exactly what it's like. Oh, I missed that movie. Okay. One lens had fallen <laughs> from his glasses and the frames were melted. His wife takes over the wheel oh. of the vehicle to drive into the hospital. Fortunately, the damage was not permanent. Wow. Connie's case was different than anything John Keel had ever experienced up to that point. He was researching UFOs. He was giving talks on UFOs. I think at this point he had already written his uh, his first book, which is a which is a book I would love to cover at some point called Jadu. That was written in the fifties. Operation Trojan Horse was in the seventies. Mothman Prophecies is nineteen seventy five. So up until this point, he had never heard of this situation. So Connie um, describes. Seeing not a UFO that gave her this this horrible red eye swelling, she saw a giant winged man in broad daylight. Oh shit! So a sensitive eighteen year old. That's what Connie is. She was sensitive. Oh, she was eighteen. I don't know. I was picturing her like a old woman. Mad young. She was mad young. She's driving home from church at ten thirty a.m. as eighteen year olds do on Sunday. November 27th, 1966. As she passes the deserted greens of the Mason County golf course outside New Haven, West Virginia, she suddenly sees a huge gray figure. It's shaped like a man, she said, but it was much larger. It was at least seven feet tall and very broad. The thing that attracted her attention was not its size, but its eyes, she said. It had large, round, fiercely glowing red eyes that focused on her with a hypnotic effect. It's a wonder I didn't run off the road and have a wreck, she commented later. As she slowed down, her eyes fixed on the apparition. She couldn't take her eyes off of this thing. Its wings unfold from its back. It seems to have a wingspan of about 10 feet. It was not an ordinary bird. (laughs) <laughs> Imagine if birds look like this. They would be. The, they would just dominate us. Yeah, no, us. that's they would, not any ordinary birds bird. Birds <laughs> would be eating people, eating little kids on the way to school. So it was not. Those are the birds we have in the Midwest, actually. The ones that, those you are know, the ones I that give you guys all pig eye. I got you. I got you. That makes sense, though. <laughs> but, okay, so this is an ordinary bird. So it's not an ordinary bird, but a man-shaped thing, which rose slowly off the ground, straight up like a helicopter, silently. The wings are not flapping. And it heads straight towards Connie's car. Its horrible eyes fix on her face, and it swoops low over her head. She shoves the accelerator down to the floorboards and gets the hell out of there. Connie had conjunctivitis for two weeks. Apparently, a long time. And get this: apparently, it was caused by the red eyes. 
it's not caused by it wasn't caused by a ufo you know it wasn't caused by the sun it was it was caused by the ultraviolet radiation coming off of this thing's eyes so well one thing that is interesting though um if we look at the Every, anytime I read a John Keel book, um, I pull up the light spectrum because I like to see where these waves are. Because I feel like by looking at the yeah. light spectrum, I'm almost looking at all of the things that exist in this world. Like I'm looking. Oh, totally. I'm looking at us. And it's wild to see how small the light spectrum is. Well, we, like we're in the, the visible light spectrum, which is tiny. What is it? Smaller than us. Smaller than what we can see is ultraviolet. Smaller than that is X-ray. Yeah. Smaller than that is gamma. Bigger than what we can see is infrared. So, um, but it, but it's important to distinguish that it's ultraviolet light that is doing this to people. I don't know. Like, I think we'll find in the future more. We'll find more connections to that. Um, in in Operation Trojan Horse, he explains that a lot of UFOs they come into the spectrum either in ultraviolet and they leave in infrared. There's the colors of things matter, you know, the colors of things. Yeah. And he has red eyes. So why does he have red eyes? Right. Um, but right. he's, but obviously if we can see him, he's in the visible light spectrum, but maybe he, he, maybe he came from the ultraviolet spectrum. So Keel thinks that not only is there a connection between UFOs and the Mothman, but, the connection itself might lead to the answer to the mystery itself. And what those connections are, he doesn't really cover in the beginning of the book. In the beginning of the book, we're just rapid firing through stories and events. So in the latter, in the next show, we'll try to cover more theories about what, what's going on here. But um, just to give you an idea, so Connie has this experience and then she's visited by this so-called Jack Brown character from before. He's, he shows up in a white car with a faulty muffler. Um, so these creatures show up around UFOs, these, these men in black creatures. So um, he shows up in a car that's wheezing. It, it, uh, he shows up to New Haven, West Virginia, where Connie is. He says he's a friend of Mary Hires. He has a strange demeanor. He disturbs her husband. He pretty much disturbs everybody in the room. And then he asks again, what would you do? What do you think if, what do you think Mary Heyer would do if someone told her to stop writing about UFOs? He asks. And Connie says she'd probably tell him to drop dead. So you got to love that, <laughs> that, uh, that frankness that these people have. They're like, they're not yeah. scared. They're, I think they're too confused to be scared. Like they're not, there's no frame of reference for this, you know? Like now, if somebody if somebody listened to the show f saw somebody like this, they would be like, okay, well, maybe this is connected to UFOs. Maybe they're robots. Maybe they're something. But for somebody who just experienced these things, they're in the middle of all this craziness. They just think it's a really, really strange person who's showing up. They right. have no frame of reference for this, let alone the Mothman. Um, and so the same guy who visited Mary Heyer came to visit her niece as yeah. well? So I guess he knows Mary, but he's not a friend of Mary's. I think that's why they let him in the house. Um, but yeah, that's most crazy. of his questions end up being stupid and unintelligible. He like rambles on for a little while and then he leaves in the car. I feel like these missions that these things are on, they're kind of meant to scare people and confuse people. 
obviously they're not really on like a important mission to spy or really even gather information. They're not abducting people. I think they're the key to what they're doing has more to do with the effect they're having on the people. You know, they're getting people to to talk to to get kind of freaked out. They're they're trying to yeah feel a little neurotic. Neurotic, yeah. They're they're putting out this neurotic energy and maybe feeding off of it. They're trying to make people nervous about UFOs. I mean, if this guy's trying to intimidate people, he's doing such a clumsy job. You know, <laughs> what would you do? <laughs> what would Mary do? If someone told her to stop writing about UFOs, you know, like that's such a strange way to try to intimidate these people. Yeah. Because it's because it comes off right. as just like an awkward question, not a threat necessarily. Right. Um, so there's this experience with another oddball. I don't know if we would call him a man in black. Uh, we would just call him another mystery man. You know, it's Max's Kansas City, which is a famous watering hole in New York's hip crowd. Watering hole is definitely a term from the 70s (laughs) or an ancient term (laughs) that comes from the watering Watering holes of of prehistoric man. It's the summer of- Are they still making bathtub gin here or what's going on? (laughs) Yeah, right. You picture a bunch of bathtubs and a bunch of gins in those (laughs) bathtubs. In the summer of 1967, an oddball character wanders into a restaurant that was already known for its odd clientele. He's tall and awkward. He's dressed in an ill-fitting black suit, and he seems out of style. His chin comes to a sharp point. His eyes bulge slightly like thyroid eyes. He's, he oh, sits oh down in a booth gestures to a waitress with his long, tapering fingers. Uh, what can I get you, honey? Something to eat. Something, something to eat. Eat. The waitress hands him a menu. He stares at it uncomprehendingly. He's unable to read. Food. Food. How about a steak? Good. She brought him a steak with all the trimmings. He stares at it for a long moment. Then he picks up the knife and fork, glancing around at the other diners. It's obvious he doesn't know how to handle the implements. (laughs) What is he doing? What is wrong with that man? The waitress watched him as he fumbled helplessly. Here, uh... This. Okay, you need this in this hand and uh, this in the other. Like, yeah, like this. Finally, she showed him how to cut the steak and spear it with a fork. He sawed away at the meat. Clearly, he was really hungry. Where are you from? Gently. Not from here. Where? Another world. She walked over to the other waitresses. Another put-on artist. That man is crazy. He said he was from another world. The other waitresses gathered in the corner, and they watch him as he fumbles through his food. Strange people around. I mean, I guess we can call that a man in black, uh, because he is a man in black. He's just not, like, intimidating (laughs) people. So there are these 
men in black. You know, men, I wonder why they dress in black and not more colorful clothing. You know, like why why that color? Yeah. Um, Maybe because black blends in with everything, so they think they're blending in, but yeah. really they're sticking out. Because because like, wh- what is an out of style black suit? Like black suits are timeless. So what's an out of style one? Like a zoot suit from the twenties or something? Like <laughs> like what is he wearing that's so out of style? Totally. Yeah. Like and and you know what? Sometimes Kiel says that these people that's how they give themselves away. They're wearing something that's either too old or something that hasn't even come into style yet. So it's like wherever they're getting mm. these clothes or however they're creating them, they're not doing it that well. They're not doing a great job, you know? Maybe they've upped their game. It's called Fashion Brenda. Look it up. <laughs> Maybe they've upped their game at this point and their their suits look better. They're just like, oh, no, you have to put a little beige with the blue and the and a nice leather. <laughs> we hear that Kim Kardashian has a well, uh, well-versed line of clothing. We, sh- we should try that now, out. Now they just all show up in Kim Kardashian clothes and they and they see how it goes. <laughs> And the other thing is, if they if they eat real food, why do they why like why does he not know what he wants to eat? Is it just because the terminology is maybe different, unfamiliar? It's like, is he trying food for the first time? But yeah, then why like, is he wh- how, does, how can he be hungry if he doesn't eat food? Exactly, it doesn't make sense. Exactly, um, makes me want a steak for some reason, but. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do what he's doing. Makes me want a hot dog real I bad. Can, I can't. I can just picture this scene with him spearing the steak, trying to get into his head, like, like falling on the ground, <laughs> trying to aim it into his face, like. Oh my gosh! Just a mess, and and yet it's awesome. Like this is an awesome thing. Because this is like... I mean, I work with those people every day in catering. <laughs> people that and they can't. don't know how to hold a knife and a fork. Like, <laughs> they try on. to make it easy, though, right? You try to put things on sticks. They're always like, Mom, can you cut size. my eight-ounce steak for me, please? Oh, my God. <laughs> cut all the fat off. <laughs> I miss I miss all that delicious catering food. But usually when you're catering, you don't have you don't have time to eat, you know? They're, yeah, well, you, very slim slim pickings. Yeah, I mean, and when you do get time to eat, eat it's like mystery. Mystery meat. Oh. I just I would just overfeed myself um, so much. Yeah. Uh, Sydney and I have been have done catering together, and uh, that is actually <laughs> how we met. Fun fact. That's actually the only job there is in New York City, unless you're a businessman. It's just businessmen and catering. <laughs> There's two That's jobs it. in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's a pretty great job yeah. because you get, especially for artists and stuff, because you get to choose your own schedule. Yeah. And well, and it's a great way to network because yeah. everyone else is just it's just a pile of artists being like trying to get by. It's a good support also, network too, right? Like, uh, yeah, like people mm-hmm. people. I remember people being really encouraging and saying, you know, oh, it's off season. You know, it, the cool thing about it is like people doing whatever they got to do, and uh, to to hustle to just hustle and 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 keep keep doing what they want to do. Um, have you ever heard of? Uh, something called thyroid eyes yes have you not well I, I i can't say that before i read this that i had a clear picture in oh. my mind of what it looks like well i have a friend who has thyroid issues and so there's a lot of issues that come with like your thyroid oh. being off because your thyroid basically balances everything in your bodily ecosystem um and so thyroid eyes is a very common like side effect from 
having thyroid issues and also the medicine that you take, it can make your eyes kind of bulge out. Whoopi Goldberg style, you know, like sticking out of your <laughs> Does face. Whoopi Goldberg have thyroid eyes? I don't think she has thyroid eyes, but she does that really freaky thing where she can like push them in front of her oh, eyelids. It is terrifying. What? Don't look it up. <laughs> I won't look it up. Well, let, I think it's Whoopi Goldberg. Well, maybe I'm. I don't one know, thing maybe I'm that wrong. I will invite our listeners to do is to look up thyroid eyes because um, my heart goes out to people that have thyroid issues for sure. But in terms of just getting a picture of uh, what this character might look like. It is very, it helps. It's, it's kind of hard to picture the men in black. Like I, I had to picture like these dark skinned, like oriental complexion, like thyroid eyes. Like, I think we're talking about different characters here. There's the, the, there's the guy with the long fingers, dark skin. And then there's this kind of guy who's like more, sounds like more of like a robot or something. Um, but the eyes are very telling and um, and they, the thing is, they, they we're not just saying this, you know, uh, these these patterns show up and Keel makes it a point to explain that he's been researching this for years. He wouldn't write a book lightly about this stuff. He definitely wouldn't write a book if this happened once or twice or 10 times or even 20 times, I don't think. He wouldn't be caught dead writing a book if this happened 20 times. He has hundreds of cases of these things that pop up. And the thing is, at that time, at that point in time, People were not looking for these weird patterns of like, oh, they don't know how to eat food. Oh, they're like fixating on stuff. Oh, they don't know how to talk unless you look into their eyes. Um, Here's another example. Uh, Miss Ralph Butler of Awatona, Minnesota asks, have you ever heard of anyone trying to drink Jell-O? Well, that's just what he did, she says. He acted like he'd never seen it before. Mrs. Butler was visited by a man in May of 1967 following a flurry of UFO sightings in Awatona. He says his name is Major Richard French when he shows up to her door. He says he's part of the U.S. Air Force. (laughs) Major Richard French. Sorry. Major Richard French. (laughs) Like, where did he get that name from, you know? Um, Yeah, that's great. So at one point, he says that his stomach hurts, right? And while he's talking to her, he seems like he can carry the conversation better than these other guys. Um, and so she offers him jello. Um, so he tries to pick up the bowl of jello and drink it, and he has no idea what to do. I think they must this is this must be their nightmare when they're like, oh no, like I have it's me against this bowl of jello, and they have no clue what to do. So then she shows him how to eat it with a spoon. Um, this guy has a gray suit. So he's a, a man in gray. Um, everything about him is brand new. This shows up in a lot of the stories too. These are the patterns Keel is looking for. The soles of his shoes are unscuffed, basically unwalked upon, unused. He has an olive complexion and a pointy face. He was His hair was dark and very long, too long for an Air Force officer. Mrs. Yeah, interesting. Mrs. Huh. Butler thought. And unlike Jack Brown, Major French was a fluent conversationalist. Um, and he seemed perfectly normal. He was able to carry conversation, no problem. So when she offers him jello, that's when his cover's kind of blown. Like this guy has no idea what to do with it. 
And for years, people like this caused this acute paranoia. You called it like neurotic, like a neurotic feeling. They just caused this paranoia around people who are into UFOs, people who have seen UFOs. You know, someone's investigating them. Someone's asking questions in like a very weird way, like maybe in a way that's like not perfect for sure. Um Here's some of the signals. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe he's only um, had Jello shots in in all of his tests and things that he had to pass. So like, he never thought he had to eat it. He was like, "Oh, I've done Jello shots before. Drink, drink." <laughs> but <laughs> I was like, "Why'd this lady put it in a bowl?" And he'd, he'd never <laughs> been he'd never been up against a bowl either. He's only had cups exactly. during his test, right. so he just wasn't prepared yeah. with what a bowl even was, let alone a bowl of Jello. Um, that would be that would make is that a, great- a real thing though? Is that like? When your stomach hurts, you're supposed to have jello. I was That's- wondering the same thing. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I, I've never heard. I'm of not that. that interested that I'm about to go on like a journey to figure out the secrets of jello. <laughs> but I do kind of miss jello. Don't you miss jello? Like, did you have that growing up at all? Oh yeah, totally. My dad would put um, like mandarin oranges and marshmallows in it, oh. and that was like our like little fruit salad like for dinner and stuff that yeah. was your fruit salad so that would were, were those the only <laughs> vegetables you had mandarins no it was fruit salad not did you vegetables. have floating pieces vegetables. of kale no kale was only invented a few years ago so <laughs> yeah no i mean we would have salads for dinner and like green beans and corn although corn doesn't really and count as vegetable peas. but yeah smashed peas nice. yeah um my mom used yeah. to torture us and get the sugar-free Jello. So every time I was eating oh, Jello, do you even notice the difference? Oh yeah, every time I would eat Jello, I would just like dream of regular Jello and be like, one one day, <laughs> one day I'll have the real stuff. And then one day, and now here the day is, and you don't buy Jello. I haven't even thought of Jello in years, but now I kind of want to buy wow. some. How hard can it be? Like hot water? I just watched. You know how like you know how silly Facebook is, where it shows you all these like um, you know viral videos, and it just they just start playing. Like you don't even have a choice to hit play. It just like starts playing, so you just watch it. I I literally just watched one. Ooh, this is kind of a synchronicity. Um, last night that was like five. Interesting jello cakes you've never seen before. And I watched the whole like 11 minute video of them making all these different jello cakes. <laughs> what? That was last night? <laughs> last that night. That is yeah. a synchronicity. <laughs> Dude, by the way, we should keep up our synchronicity journal again because it's been happening to me a lot. Like a yeah. lot, a lot. I wish I could Let's think of it. a good example. I'll see if I can remember some of the examples, some of the craziest examples. Um, Oh, the other day I was looking at um, old Instagram pictures, right? And I was like, um, you know, I wonder when I had started real estate, because because uh, I because I do I did do real estate in New York City. So I was wondering like when I had started, like what my start date was. And I found a picture that said on my Instagram my first day on the job, right? And I, my first Aww, picture of a building. Yeah, I was freaking terrified to do to to show apartments. Like I just, uh, it was an oh, empty sure. building, and I was walking into that building with the key in my hand, like I was trying Jello for the first time. Like I had <laughs> no control. Not the sugar free. I was kind. like, uh, I was like, I didn't know what to do. But I remember I took that picture outside of this building in the West Village. I look at what date it is, and it is that exact same date. It was like as like a couple days. In ago, other words, like the August day that I saw something. that picture was the yeah. exact date that it was. 
that's weird. And that's, that's like a minor one that I've had recently, but, um, but they're cool nonetheless. I, I have a feeling that yeah. they're, we, we should get, we should get back to noticing them. And I, I kind of, well, the jello one was an accident. I wouldn't have known it was a synchronicity unless, unless you, you t- didn't yeah. tell the story. So <laughs> that's, that's really cool. Actually. That's really, really cool. Um, the, uh, what does it mean? I think it means there there needs to be more Jello in our lives. I think definitely, I definitely want some Jello now. But also, I think that it, a lot <laughs> of these signs mean that we're on the right track. Like I kind of always see them as like you're driving through a highway, and like you know when like you're not sure if you're going the right way after a long drive, and then suddenly you see a bunch of signs that like you confirm that you've made it to the right place and you have this feeling. Okay. Like, yes. Okay. I thought you meant like you're driving the wrong direction, like down a one way lane or something. I was like, that's terrifying. That no. Is terrifying. <laughs> those are, those are synchronicities of the, of the worst kind, probably that, that feeling. So, so here's something cool. So Keel breaks down. What are the signs? What are the signs he's found in his stories? And the thing is, here's the thing. He doesn't tell people anything so he doesn't ask them about this in fact he hides this information in his back pocket and he's observed he's waiting to hear these things to see if they describe these things what are these things what are these characteristics of the men in black at least in this area around this time so they arrive in old model cars they're shiny they're pretty much brand new vehicles that have never been used Sometimes they slip up in what they wear. And we talked about this before. They either wear clothes that are out of fashion or even more unusual clothes that have not come into fashion yet. They're wearing some like Marty McFly style something. I don't know. Uh, Those who posed as military officers, they have no knowledge of military jargon. So they show up with like long, like – you know, Seattle rocker hair. And I don't know. I just, I just picture them. They're like Foxtrot. (laughs) (laughs) They just don't know. They just, they don't know anything about the military. They, they had an occasion. If they pull out a wallet or something like that, it's brand new. It's never been used. If they pull out a notebook, it's never been used before. Like the fairies of old, they often like to collect souvenirs from the witnesses so they'll, they're Aww. delighted if you give them like a magazine or a pen or any object. For them, it's like the greatest thing to like have this little thing. Oh my God, that's so, so cute. I don't even know how to take that information. Like what, 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 what kind of a life do you have? What kind of existence <laughs> is it like on Zorblob 5 that like a pen Zorblob. completely rocks your world? So yeah, a lot of the descriptions are similar about these people. Um, like if like throughout the 1800s, 1900s, the 60s, the 70s, if they talk to pilots that literally get off the UFOs, a lot of them have pointed features, pointed chins. They don't quite fit faces. into the skin suit very well, is what you're saying. Dusty skin and unusually long fingers. Dust dusty skin? I wonder why a lot of them are oriental. Like, what does that mean? Like my, my immediate thought about that would be like in the, like, what if they're from the future where we all look like that or something, you know, where, or where like, you know, 
China. Yeah, we're or like something. race. Race isn't. Yeah, ethnic background is just all blended. So it's just kind of like a yeah. little bit of everything. But I would say that like the like Eastern um, facial features are very prominent. So that would probably stick through in any kind of like you know mix mixing of race and such. Right, like, and I guess like that makes sense. you go far enough into the future where they have all kinds of technology. And then they just become, they have like a code about how they deal with time travel, right? And they just, for them, it's probably not even time travel. It's just like moving into what what is there now from the past, like we've talked about. Like yeah. just like moving sideways in a way. And like they just, coexist, they have coexisted with us since the beginning of history. Hmm. These these entities from the future, Um or I also, I, I have know. to mention, you're using these terms like directly from John Keel, right? Like the yeah. oriental description. Exactly. Because I think that like that kind of term was definitely not as faux pas as it is now. That's like a very, it's kind of derogatory to use that term now. Yeah. Um, but he says Korean at some point. I think, I right, think his right. intentions are good. Like he doesn't want, he's not saying it's from any particular country. So, yeah, so yeah. how do you describe that and actually tell people what that looks like? I think that's his right. best way to describe. Asian, Asian descent. Yeah. Eastern Asian descent. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm using a lot of John Keel's terminology because I think it's really important to hear him and to understand his descriptions of things. So when it comes to the Mothman, our protagonist of our story, we are looking at three different types of creatures that show up. Three different manifestations. It's either a winged looking man. It looks like a man and it's winged. Some people describe- A man looking wing. (laughs) A man looking (laughs) wing. Uh, A giant bird- which is so big, right? it's biologically impossible for this thing to fly or even exist. Like a pterodactyl or Yeah, like, something. or, yeah, or something that should, just has, like, very, very off, like a bird or, that just has completely or, off or proportions. Or a moth. Yeah. Like a bug. A moth, a demon with, or the third one is a demon with red eyes and bat wings. It's close to bottom, it's close to human form. John Keel says they're probably all related. He says they're probably all related, which is just so unconventional. It's unconventional, which is just so <laughs> unconventional for someone to say something like that. Like, I would not think right. that because I think we're all thinking along the lines of physical entities. We're all mm-hmm. thinking along the lines of like, oh, they're just three different things. They're separate. We're not thinking about the puppeteer at all, you know? Or, or if it's not a puppeteer, the energy that it comes from. What if it's yeah. just like a freaking zone of ultraviolet white, of ultraviolet, like white noise that just comes in and like grabs images from your mind and throws itself in here. Ooh, yeah. Looking- well, and those images can be different given person to person. Like they can, you know, you, you see what your mind tells you to see pretty much if you don't know how, what it is. And that's kind of how the, these things the, show the up. Red, the red eyes with the bat wings makes me, it's kind of going in the in the realm of like vampires, Dracula, that kind of thing. So that, that sounds a little too different from the other two descriptions to me. But, but I could see how they all fit together, I guess. It's kind of coming from the join us for another cosmic feast. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, uh. I, lo- I love that. Mothman. 
They're Mothman. like, oh, for centuries. So so the term Mothman actually comes from a, an editor, an anonymous editor who was trying to find a catchy name like Batman. But it really should be like Birdman. But now Birdman doesn't yeah. sound scary because, oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Up before in the that, air, Junior Birdman. Harvey Birdman. Have you ever seen Harvey Birdman? Uh, yeah, I know of it. Attorney at law. Um, well, it's <laughs> Stephen Colbert. He's like this. I think Stephen Colbert plays Birdman. Uh, Harvey Birdman. It's Birdman is amazing. It's not Michael Keaton. Birdman is a lawyer, obviously. <laughs> no, and Michael Keaton. Yeah. So Birdman just wouldn't work. Like you couldn't name it Birdman now because of those two really strong references. So Mothman. You know what? I, I think Mothman is strange. It's strange. It's strange enough that it kind of works. If you see a moth, moths are strange. Uh, they're also beautiful. And you're looking at something that is strange because it doesn't have feathers. People don't describe feathers. And you'll see when I get into the stories that they, so it's not exactly a bird. It's not exactly a moth. But you know, there is a bird, a bird moth. It looks like a little freaky hummingbird. What? Yeah. Bird moth. They're like really long. um, What's the thing that comes out of their mouth? Like the, the antennae oh thing. Oh my they, they're, God, they're beautiful. I immediately thought yeah. when you said that, my first thought was, I want one. <laughs> Dude, how cool would Funny it be to moth. just have like a little moth? Yeah, right. Can you have a moth oh, as a moths pet? Moths are like, I, mm, I don't know about that. I don't know how long they live, but I guess you could try. They're, they're, <laughs> some of them are really, really beautiful. Oh yeah, they're like fluffy. And have you seen their their larva, like the caterpillar version of moths before they change? Like the, even those are like incredible looking. No, I want. I, I want because nothing. My friend is like a bug freak. I want nothing so to do with what moths. they were before they turned into cute moths. No, I'm just kidding. Your friend, <laughs> your friend is a bug freak. Yeah. Did I meet mm-hmm. this friend? Yeah, it's Chris. Of course. I mean. You mean your best bud? I call him your best bud. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome that he's into Yeah, he's my best bud. Th- that's awesome. That- my BB Chris. You know what's so funny? I kept trying to talk to him. I talk- I tried to talk to him twice because I wanted to introduce myself and be like, I know you're like one of her best friends. And I wanted to introduce myself to your other best friend. I think her name is Sarah or something. Or Yeah. I wanted- so I was like, Isabel, I really need – I was like nervous. I was like, I really need to go say hi to them. And like, so I was like, get up with me. So like we maneuvered to like one group of people and then we were maneuvering. And then, and then he like moved and walked away. So then I had to pretend like I wasn't going in that direction. And like <laughs> Isabel and I were like on a mission and like both times it, it didn't work out. Oh no. So I didn't get to introduce you myself. You should have told to me. I would have introduced you. I know you I wanted to I'm say so hi because I, I know I know they're they're dear to you. Yeah. But, um and they're cool. Um so this is interesting. I mean, I really would like to look into can you own one of these dope fluffy moths as a pet? <laughs> That's kind of like our our graphic, right? Little mini moth man. Yes, Monty. So cute. Um, I think, um, I'm trying to think of the largest moth. It's called a Hercules moth. That's it. Look no it up. No way. Dude, I'm having a great time Googling moths. I think <laughs> I suggest everybody do this. Everybody go Google a moth. 
my girlfriend told this story around the first time that we were thinking of covering the Mothman. This is related to this, this kind of a moth. This moth is actually kind of scary looking. I'm not going to lie. He's scary looking, and he also looks like he was designed in the 70s because that's those are his colors. Like very 70s, <laughs> like math teacher. Yeah, it is. Like, like a brown couch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the couches or like the carpets at the time. So my girlfriend around the time <laughs> that we were originally – working on the Mothman, she brought up this story on her own without knowing anything about the fact that we were covering the Mothman. She said that she was in the Colombian jungle once uh, on a, on a trip on like a vacation trip with her friends. And she was terrified at the sight of a giant black butterfly with red spots that look like eyes she said this butterfly was huge and its red spots looked like eyes. And she said that it scared her to her core. This is before she knew anything yeah. about us doing this show, really, us doing this episode. She didn't have any clue what the Mothman looked like. Do you remember this story? I do. And I couldn't, I was going to say, you're going to have to take this out, but I can't remember if it's from the first time we recorded this episode or if it was from a different episode, but I think it was this one, right? So we, I think it was from the first time. Yeah. And we might, yeah. we might edit that out just because I don't know what we gain from telling people that we are recording this. Yeah, no, we, no. Take that out. We're but. redoing it, but we're redoing it out of love. Like I wanted to do this. This, this this book means a lot to me, and it means a lot to a lot of people. There's a Mothman Festival every year. We should go to that, totally. Uh, oh, the one in Point Pleasant. Yeah. I remember we talked about that. Yeah, like yeah. there's this 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 story, and there's new books, which I which I hope we'll cover uh, about the phenomenon. There's actually an, an awesome book that um, – that covers like like sort of later theories that John Keel might have had about what caused this. So it goes even further than this book, but the book is so special. Um, so, but anyway, but it, relating to my girlfriend's story, that she she was scared of a tiny of like a tiny giant butterfly with red eyes. Now, <laughs> if she is terrified red by the spot. sight of this not so big giant butterfly. Right? Right. Imagine what effect this creature has on people's minds. Oh, yeah. It's funny because I try to picture the stuff that we investigate in my mind, like any rational person would for a moment. But then the second it gets too real in my head, I try not to think <sighs> about it anymore because I don't want to have these sharp visualizations you know, mm -hmm. because what my imagination is trying to do when we cover this stuff is it's trying to, I want to know what it looks like. You know, I think we all kind of want to see it. Like we, we want to look, you know, right. it's like, it's like a freaky circus. And like, we, we, we really want to look, you know, like, even though it terrifies us, you know, we, we want to see the, uh, the, um, the demon winged the man. But then we don't want to see the entity. And I don't really want this image perfectly rendered in my head right before I go to sleep. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, but uh, Naturally, for obvious reasons. <laughs> this is the perfect moment to dive into some stories. So let's take things back to 1953. The figure of a man with wings like a bat. And it wasn't 
a wing that looked like a man or something hilarious that you said. It's a figure of a man <laughs> with wings, like a bat, dressed in tight fitting black clothes, surrounded by an eerie glow, startled three people in Houston, Texas on June 18th, 1953. Mrs. Hilda Walker said, I could see him in plain sight and could see he had wings folded at his shoulders. He was about six and a half feet tall. He was perched on a limb of a pecan tree. His halo of light slowly faded out as he vanished. Immediately afterwards, Miss Walker continued, we heard a swoosh over the housetops across was like, and then there was this white flash of a torpedo shaped object. I might be nuts, but I saw it, whatever it was, Howard Phillips. Another witness declared. I love how this guy was just like, I might be crazy. <laughs> I'm a crazy well, son of a bitch. nuts because he's looking at a man on a pecan tree. <laughs> oh, maybe he was making a joke. And that was like totally like a solid He's like, I may be nuts as he shoves pecans into his mouth. And everybody <laughs> around him is like, oh. <laughs> oh, Howard. Oh, Howard. You really should pursue stand up. <laughs> The Phantom Flyer. It was the next big year that our Phantom Flyer appears is like pretty much in 1961. Residents along Florida's Tamiami Trail began seeing what one woman described as a big vulture with widespread wings. It had a wingspan of about 55 feet, which is sort of unusual, she says. In May 1961. 55 feet? Yeah. 55 feet is not possible. So that's in that category of giant bird that's not possible. So yeah, tell me we're not seeing some kind of a crazy ass holographic puppet show. Like this is not right. This (laughs) this thing ain't real, but it is. But it isn't. Um, In May 1961, a New York pilot buzzed that he saw a big damn bird in that area. It was bigger than (laughs) an eagle. It says a damn big bird. I don't even think Big Bird exists. That was a damn big bird. <laughs> I mean, yeah, 55 feet, that'd be like the size of an airplane. Maybe not quite as big as an airplane, but like almost. I have no perception of measurement in like life. So 50. Well, think about it. Your wingspan is about your height. So right. we'll say most people's wingspan is around five and a half feet. That would be 10, 10 people's wingspans. It's the size of a plane, kind of. A small plane. Pretty much. Yeah, with the wings out. That's, yeah, probably roughly. What's the wingspan of like a 747? Ooh, 747s are big, so I would say over 100. 224 feet. So it's not a 747 size bird. It's a like little biplane style bird, maybe. Right. Um... So they see this massive bird. A pilot sees the bird, and he's like, for a moment, he's like, it was bigger than an eagle. Well, yeah, it was a lot fucking bigger than an eagle. For a moment, he's like, I doubted my sanity. It looked more like a pterodactyl out of the prehistoric past, he says. The thing had yeah, swooped at his plane as he cruised up the Hudson River Valley. Okay, so hold on. So these are two different sightings. So there are two different sightings. The in, one with the lady in 1961. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, one was in Florida, right? One's in Florida, one's in New York. That's the one where the pilot sees it. He says the thing swooped on his plane as he as he cruised up the Hudson River Valley, far away, uh, and then far away in the Ohio River Valley, another pair of people had an even more breathtaking experience. So why is this thing just showing up 1961? It's like yeah. it hears some sort of cosmic bell and just starts showing up everywhere. Uh, uh, <sighs> A woman prominent in civic affairs in Point West, Virginia, was driving on Route 2 along the Ohio River with her elderly father. And as they passed through a sector on the edge of a park known as Chief Cornstalk Hunting Grounds, a tall, man-like figure suddenly appeared in the road in front of them. I slowed down, she told me years later. And as we got closer, we could see that it was much larger than a man. A big gray figure. It stood in the middle of the road. The, then the pair of wings unfolded from its back. The same sort of like weird unfolding. And they practically filled the whole road. It looked, it almost looked like a small airplane, she says. And then it took off straight yeah. up, disappearing out of sight. She said, me and my father were both terrified. I stepped on the gas and raced out of there. Wow, and they talked to they talked to each other about it, and they decided not to tell anybody because who would believe us anyway? They said, <sighs> "How many weird things happen to people that they just don't talk about? They don't mention." Here we have a story from the one, the only Jacques Vallée. Ah, our favorite man, Jacques Vallée. Our man. Jacques Valley, the statistician and computer expert, was given access to the Air Force's UFO files when he comes across a curious report from an Air Force colonel who was driving alone on a road in Illinois one night. There was no date given. And he becomes aware of something flying above his car. He says it's a huge bird the size of a small airplane. It flapped its wings and soared away. Damn. Damn big bird. It's Big Bird, man. It's it's the, oh my God. What if every supernatural entity had its Sesame Street counterpart? Like, I, Ew, wonder, I, wonder, I wonder what the grays would be. They wouldn't be Grouch. Oscar the Grouch, would they? No. I'm not mm. sure. They would be more like Grover. <laughs> so 1968-1969. A business, this is ramping up. This is ramping up. There's like a lot of Mothman suddenly, suddenly we're in, we're on fire with the Mothman stuff. Keel is like finally like throwing the book of Mothman at us. Um, a business in Arlington, a businessman in Arlington, Virginia wrote, writes to Keel describing experience he and three friends had in 1968, 1969. They were at a farm near Haymarket when they heard a strange rushing sound near a small lake. Intrigued, they set out with flashlights and a couple dogs to investigate. Suddenly the dogs howled, turned tail, and ran. There, standing by the tree, was a huge, dark shadow between eight and 12 feet tall. The quartet scurried back to their car, turned their lights, swung them towards the shadow, and they said all we saw was this huge thing with red, orange eyeballs and wing-like arms. He's like, we couldn't get out of there fast enough. I think that we need to um, be more fair with our stories and cover a moth woman as well. 
So. Okay. So. This story. Okay. So. So this is the story of a moth woman. This is our one moth woman story. Ready? Yeah. This this is from an Earl Earl Morrison. He's a witness. He was serving as a private first class in the Marine Corps in Vietnam, summer of 1969. It was the summer of 1969, and now <laughs> me and my two buddies were sitting on top of a bunker near Da Nang on a warm summer evening. I don't know why, but we all three looked out of the sky. We saw this figure coming towards us. I don't know. I'm giving him an old man voice because uh, because he's not young when he's telling the story, right? Yeah. It had a kind of glow and we couldn't make out what it was at first. It started coming towards us real slowly. All of a sudden we saw what looked like wings, like a bat's. Only it was a all of a sudden we looked we saw what looked like wings, like a bat's, only it was gigantic compared to what a regular bat would be. After it got close enough so we could see what it was, it looked like a woman, a naked woman. She was black. Oh. She was black and her skin was black. Her body was black. Her wings were black. Everything was black, but it glowed. It glowed in the night, kind of a greenish cast to it. There was a glow on her and around her. Everything glowed. Looked like she glowed and threw off a radiance. We saw her arms towards the wings. They looked like regular molded arms, each with a hand and fingers and everything, but the skin had the, but they had skin from the wings going over them. And when she flapped her wings, there was no noise at first. It looked like her arms didn't have any bones in them because they were limber, just like a bat. Kind of creepy, right? She started going. Still have bones in their arms, don't they? Yeah, I don't know. Do they? But but she but you get the picture of what he's trying to say. Like like she started going over at us, and we didn't hear anything. She was right above us, and she got over the top of our heads. She was maybe six or seven feet up. We couldn't do anything. We didn't know what to do. We just froze. We just watched what was going over because we couldn't believe our eyes. So we watched her go straight over the top of us and she didn't make any noise, flapping her wings. She blotted out the moon once. That's how close she was to us. And as we watched her, she got about 10 feet away from us. We started hearing her wings flap and it sounded, you know, like like regular wings. She, She just started flying off and we watched her for quite a while. The total time we saw her, you could almost say was between three or four minutes. Apparently in Vietnam, there was a big UFO wave between 1968 and 1969. Um, And it also included an epidemic of phantom helicopters. And naked flying women. So maybe that's like on on the pinky. Yeah, the pinky of the ring finger is like the phantom helicopters of the puppeteer and the... uh, and the naked huh. bat, bat, bat girl. Bat it lady. makes me think of that cartoon gargoyles, because there was that really sexy gargoyle bat lady. There was. Now I have to rewatch this show. How sexy? <laughs> how sexy was this gargoyle? I don't know. She had red hair, like flowing. Um, and she had like tattered clothes, like a, um, like a, what? What is it called? What like? George of the Jungle wears where it's just like a flap on the front. I have no idea what George of the Jungle wears. Anyway, yeah, I just were remember you a she fan had like crazy red hair. That was a big show. I did in the watch 90s. it. 
Yeah, I did watch it as a kid. I saw that it's on it's on Disney Plus or something. I need to rewatch it though. I wonder what the theme song to that show was. What what, Ooh, yeah, what was the Gargoyles Diddy, you know? Oh yeah. The Gargoyle City. Dude, you know what? That is these this is a fantastic reference for this character. You know, like we're we're trying to uh Google different things to give us a frame of reference. The gargoyle lady. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you picture her, I'm looking at the cartoon gargoyle lady. If you picture her like black skin, maybe not the cool punk rock hair or the clothing. You you get <laughs> you get this feeling from this story. The reason I love this story so much is I can see this. I can see it with them. I can see yeah, it. Yeah, totally. Like, the way he described how it glows. Yeah. How it like threw off this green cast. I thought that was They're not really super scared good. of it. Yeah, the green yeah. the green glow is an interesting detail. That sounds like a detail of somebody that <clears throat> saw something. You know? Yeah. It's weird. It was glowing, but it, it so it had black skin, so it, was, it looked a little green, you know? Her wings, her her arms, the arms and her wings didn't look like they had bones. Like like they were like literally. You're in that moment where you're. They're looking at her. They're like, whoa, you know, what does this thing look like? Yeah. Like if if you if we were able to see an alien or a supernatural creature, I would love to think that we would have a moment to really just look for a moment. Like, what mm-hmm. does this look like? Does he have ears? Like, what does the skin look like? Is it slimy? Is it dry? Yeah. You know, like, what What does it so physically look like? So many details to take in. Huh? There's so many details to take in. Yeah, and, and your emotions would probably just be firing on all cylinders. Your fear. Yeah. Um, so d- does fear blind us, you know? The great thing about fear, these- well, fear definitely puts different images in our minds than what really happened too. It can make us, you know, imagine something more or less than what actually was. That's why, as a researcher or somebody who's reading researchers, or somebody listening to somebody who's reading the researchers, like you can't, you can't base this on a sighting or two or twenty. You know, you have to, <laughs> you have to literally catalog these stories and mm-hmm. and what kind of a human being has the patience to catalog this you know in the 60s and the 70s what kind of a person does it take to take time to like interview the people instead of trying yeah. to find evidence of spacecraft and like using metal detectors and like saying like oh can i would you mind if i look in your lawn you know i'm looking for fame and fortune i'm looking to touch a piece of the divine, you know, instead Keel is like, you know, would you mind if I sat with you for a moment? Do you have any coffee? Like, can I talk to you about what happened? Like, can I, can I get your story? Yeah. He's more like a journalist than a researcher in that sense. I mean, he has that journalist skill of, of interviewing yeah. people, of not feeding people the story. I'm sure journalists have to be really careful that they're not feeding the story to the person. Totally. Especially totally. if they have knowledge of other things that are going on in the area that are similar. So there, it's, so a lot of this is patterns. If there was one Mothman sighting, that would be one thing. But you're getting a lot of the same information. 
At least, Mm -hmm. look, there's a difference between the Point Pleasant stuff and we're kind of jumping around through like the 60s. We're working our way up to Point Pleasant. We're about to get there. So this is actually one of the most famous UFO stories, period. It takes place in 1963, November 16th, 1963. This takes place in Sandling Park Hythe in Kent, England. A bright star Mm. appears over the trees in Sandling Park, Hythe, on the night of November 16th. And it begins, like, and here we have, like, our classic UFO characters, teenagers, of course. (laughs) Teenagers are the only people who go outside at night. So we're strolling. kids seem to be the only ones who look up, and that's, that's the issue, is that I feel like we lose that you know, questioning of like, what is up there? And looking up there. I remember looking up at the sky all the time as a kid. And like, I never rarely do it ever anymore. That is beautiful. <laughs> what you just said. There. That is beautiful. And it's so simple. Like kids look up and we don't, right? We, we already know what's out there, right? Or we're too busy, you know, kids, right. you know, I think what it makes me think of is when I was a teenager, like we didn't have we didn't have like a clubhouse or a treehouse. Unfortunately, we never had a treehouse. Like like we didn't have a place to go hang. So where yeah. would we hang? Where would we drink? Where would we hang out? We would go to like a park or the reservation, you know, in Jersey or whatever. Like we would just be outside. We would be outdoors. Like your night Definitely as outdoors, a teenager yeah. would be like walking from the freaking ice cream store or the coffee shop or Starbucks or whatever to like someone's house, going to someone else's yeah. house. You spent a lot of time outside as a kid, which is kind of cool, but that's a very good insight. So, so it makes sense. Teenagers are the ones out along a country road in the middle of this park in Sandling Park. Um, they're going home from a dance. There These you teenagers go. are coming home from a dance when the movements of a star, a star catches their eye. <laughs> it dips out of the sky and it heads straight for them. It finally drops down below some trees. John Flaxton, he's 17 years old. He he says he suddenly feels extremely cold. He has this sense of overpowering fear. We were just talking about fear, engulfing the group. Like basically a wave of fear hits all of them at once, right? Wow. Like talk yeah. about a different kind of experience. These are not kids that are seeing, hearing a gunshot. These are kids that get overwhelmed with fear because of something they see outside. Um, they start to run. Suddenly the light uh, of this golden oval shaped object reappears from behind the trees and it moves along with them from a distance of about 200 feet. They stop, the light stops. They move, the light moves. They stops, the light Ew. stops. Then it loses. Then they lose sight of it behind trees. And the four youngsters slow down. They catch their breath. <sighs> you know, like they're like, all right. And they look over, and suddenly a tall, dark figure emerges from the woods. It oh. waddles. It waddles towards them. It's completely black, and it has no discernible head. It's a freaking headless-looking entity. Mervyn Hutchinson, 18 years old. What a name Mervyn has. Describes oh, poor it as a human-sized bat. It has big bat wings on its back, 
And he says all four of us took off as fast as we could. Wow. You know. That's wild. And it didn't have a head? Or just I guess they just couldn't tell if it had a head. They claim it doesn't have a head. So So it just must it must be like the shoulders. Right. And like maybe the must, wings go up here. Yeah. So you can't really see its head and then it's like what? What if it just has like the tiniest freaking head? Like it's like <laughs> real small. Or it's like an owl. I feel like owls they don't really have necks because you know they're whatever their feathers just kind of blend into their shoulders. Oh. And they and they when they walk they kind of waddle. Have you ever seen an owl walk? Not enough, Sydney. Not enough. Not enough. They have like terribly long legs for how weird shaped their body is. They like stand up. They got big old legs with knees, and then they're like yeah, and they waddle <laughs> forward. Dude, that's I, a nightmare uh... in and of itself. <laughs> Unless it's a baby owl. If it's a baby owl, there's it's like a dream come true for anybody who who gets to witness a baby owl waddling towards them. Uh, hoot hoot. Uh, the few times that I've seen owls, they've been literally the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Um, really? Like, for some reason, seeing an owl in person and an eagle also are, like, stunning, stunning things that I've seen in my life. Stunning. Stunning. And it was like in an animal sanctuary. It was in a bird, like hospital sanctuary kind of place. So oh, nice. it wasn't like I got to see them in their, all their glory, like fly by me perfectly. Like it was just like just watching them in the cage while they were cool. getting better and watching Netflix and stuff. And I'm just like, <clears throat> dude, you are beautiful. Um, but here's the thing. Like, why isn't the Mothman pretty? I mean, I beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Maybe, maybe there are some people out there that are like, you know, I don't know. The female Mothman sounded pretty beautiful. She did. She did sound pretty, pretty hot. But, but why aren't they colorful? Why aren't they? Well, it seems like all these sightings are happening at night too. So maybe, like, you know, maybe they, like we were talking about the light spectrum. Maybe they're not quite on the light spectrum because they're emitting these UV rays and stuff. So, like, if there's no light from the sun on them they just appear like like and you know nothingness like empty completely black like the absence of color yeah like maybe they're not black you know but right but they don't are there any sightings during the day yeah and and i'll uh and i'll let you know about one of them a little bit later um before we wrap up, but there is a sighting of someone who got to see his face actually. So, oh wow, coming up, the face of Mothman. Um, that was pretty good for like a coming up like TV voice, right? The face coming of Mothman. <laughs> I, so, I think like one of the coolest things that we just kind of touched upon is this concept of like why do the negative some have interpreted as demonic or very alien. Like how come these things are not more like just beautiful by our standards looking, you know, like how come they're not like, they don't fit our definition of like a beautiful woman. You know, maybe some guy's definition of a beautiful woman is this moth woman, but, um, but (laughs) it's interesting, right? Because they kind of, they seem scary. Like they are scary to us. They're not, they don't, they don't, it's like they come with this aura and some entities come with this aura of like 
holiness and, and love. And like everything. an angel. Yeah. Or, yeah. Like, because angels could, also have wings and glow, typically. Well, but apparently some angels, or I, mean, I don't even know if it's some, like, like apparently there's no mention of angels having wings. Uh, oh, in, oh right! Didn't we scripture. talk about that? That, that yeah, like it was like, an artist who added the wings, to- right? So, so the angels themselves are, but but the angels themselves are they don't come off as scary mothmen, you know? They come off as like divine people or or beings or or something, um, you know? Our, our well, this is my daily pep talk about energy and how important I think energy is, and that like that you know like. The whole like, oh, there was so much tension in the air. You could cut through it with a knife, you know? Like, you can't physically see energy and tension and feelings of, like, negative and, and positive. Um, yeah. But that energy is real, and it and it transfers to you depending on, you know, the connotations behind it. So maybe it is supposed to be daunting because if people are, you know, for, for the most part, at least most of these stories, they are terrified by it. Wouldn't that mean that that's kind of the point that it's trying to get by? I mean, it's not because like we talk about those um, in in American Cosmic when we talk about the divine, um, you know, viewings of of higher beings and like how people were just that that man who was like on fire. Do you remember when I told you that story of the guy who was like in flames and was like burning this lady and she was just like so calm and just happy that he was there because it was like, you know positive energy so yeah there's my daily energy pep talk well (laughs) well but you're right though everything kind of boils down to energy like what energy do you have it's not unrelated having good energy when you walk in a room or having mothman energy those are two very different energies you know if you have somebody at your workplace that has mothman energy and you're like bro like, please stop hovering over me. And like, why, how much, how much weed did you smoke that your eyes are this red? You know, like. Yeah. You're, you're going to give me pink eye with all your, your darting eyes. Where are your pants, sir, sir. Uh, <laughs> but, but like, but no, but like some people do really have dark energy sometimes, or sometimes we're capable of having dark energy. Like if you catch us in a bad moment where we are just got like, where we just got screwed over or we're angry, you know, nothing is worse than when you're angry about something, when you think that you have been mistreated or, or miss something has been mishandled, you know, the energy shifts completely within you and totally. people bring those energies into a room. Um, there, there, there's a spectrum for this, these kind of emotional experiences, you know, <clears throat> there's a spectrum for it. Have um, you seen What We Do in the Shadows? I haven't. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I First have of to all, see fantastic. That. First of all, it's how a, have I not seen movie. that movie? I can't believe you haven't. Because or the it show, is, right? It, there's a show now, too, yeah, that FX made. Um, and what I was going to bring up is part in the show. So there's um, the show is about vampires, and they all like live in a house together in Staten Island. That's like what the TV show is based you off of. You have just ruined to, like, the show, Sydney. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, Ooh, it's in the trailer. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then there's one vampire that they live with who just looks like 
like a dude. He doesn't look, he doesn't dress like a vampire. He doesn't like have, you know, uh, uh, an old Victorian accent like the rest of them do or, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. And he's just like, hey, I'm Colin. And everyone's like, why is he a vampire throughout the whole show? And then there's this one episode that's fully dedicated to like him. And how he survives, because typically, how do vampires survive off the blood of humans, right? They, they have to suck blood to get their power. Um, well, this, this one, this vampire, he's called an energy vampire because what he does is he just sucks the energy out of people. <laughs> so he has like a mundane life in an office and he just like goes around and he just talks to people until they literally pass out because he's like sucked the energy out of them because he just he's so mundane in the way he speaks and he just like keeps talking and he loves it too and he'll make like he'll break the fourth wall and he'll look at the camera and like smile and he'll be like hee hee that's brilliant oh my god it's so good it's so clever but that's what that made me think of too you know that. but I have heard of even supernatural stories about energy vampires I mean that's freaky right because it's yeah. not as like simple as like not simple but it's not as clear to distinguish right. as as yeah. fangs and blood and all that stuff like that's mm-hmm. like dude there are people that i've met that i'm pretty sure are like subconsciously yes. energy vampires and i think know, that's like, the joke is that it's is that it's like yeah there's a lot of real humans that we think of as energy vampires <laughs> that's great and and yep. And I guess it's a way for us to compare it to our experiences, you know, like bringing in like, you know, Mothman Steve to the office and and just like getting caught with this guy in the lunchroom. Like if you get oh, caught with man. the wrong person in the lunchroom, you're just like, no. Like there goes your hour long break. Ugh, you're like, so much this person for- must not sit with me. I like to eat alone. <laughs> I want to eat my sandwich alone. I need some goddamn peace and quiet. (laughs) (laughs) You like make up an excuse to go to the bathroom. Exactly. Um, Oh, I'm so sorry, uh, Steve, but I'm going to shit my pants. So uh, I'll see you never. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, I I don't miss offices and office culture. Like where all I remember like distinctly from uh, office culture was that lunchtime was the greatest moment of the day, like by far, by far, by far. In fact, I would start thinking about lunch at like 11 a.m. Before you know it. That's not too far away. Yeah, I know. But it's it's so close, but it's so far at the same time at 11, you know? I mean, it's kind of the same thing for school in a way. You know, you're always looking at the clock like, ooh, when is the bell going to ring for lunch? (laughs) Lunch is freedom. Yeah, except... Except with even during lunchtime in an office situation, you're just like, I'm still trapped here. Until until oh, that's you why like I would leave. leave. Yeah, until I you would could leave. leave the school. That was the best. Yeah. Like when you were sixteen and you could drive and you just like go out to a subway and have lunch with your friends. Like that was like the most badass ever. I was like, I'm so freaking cool. <laughs> I remember when I found out it was almost up there with when I found out what sex was. Like, like when I found out that we could leave school, like, remember how unbelievable that was? You were like, wait, what are the seniors allowed to do? <laughs> or I think it was like junior year. You're like, what are they allowed to do? They're allowed to leave and they yeah. trust us to come back. And then I remember like thinking through it and I was like, well, I guess we have to come back. I guess we have no choice. Like this trust... Of course, I immediately wanted to break that trust, but I was like, 
They really Come on, have Ferris us there. Bueller. We really have to run back after getting pizza somewhere. So, okay, so here we are. So <laughs> we've been to some funny places. And I'm glad because this is like really heavy, mothman-y kind of stuff. So like we're starting, we're, like we've been through a lot of the sort of um, stories on the outside of the phenomenon. We haven't really been in Point Pleasant yet. So we're going to definitely cover Point Pleasant and the Silver Bridge collapse. And we're going to cover exactly Keel's like role in the story. Because Keel becomes a character in this story. So he's oh, wow. writing about the story and he becomes a character in the story. He, the, the phenomenon loves messing with Keel. And so it's kind of like fate that brings him to this town. So Is that how he got interested in it? Is because like it, the phenomenon was... You know Th- that maybe we can explore with his first book because I don't really know how I got interested. How okay. does how does somebody in the fifties? I mean, I guess a lot of people were interested in UFOs because of all those awesome science fiction movies of the fifties and stuff. Yeah. But but yeah. how did you go from like th- Kiel could have been an amazing lots of things. Like this man right. could have been, but I think he was a reporter. So maybe as a reporter, he started touching upon like really weird stories, and he was like. Hmm. Let me look into this more. Um, makes sense, right? I'm pretty sure he was a reporter, but okay. So this story, I'm giving you one of the keys to the Mothman gates here. It's 7 p.m. It's November 2nd in 1966. Woody Derenberger is heading home in his panel truck after a long, hard day. It's like sour and chill outside. It's rainy. He drove up, uh, he drives up this long hill outside of Parksburg on Interstate 77. And suddenly he hears a crash in the back of his truck. He snaps on his interior lights and looks back. A sewing machine fell off the top of a stereo in his truck because Woody has a bunch of junk in his trunk. Truck. (laughs) And a car sweeps up from behind him and passes him. So another vehicle seems to be following that other car on the road. He eases his foot off the accelerator because he's a bit distracted. He's been slightly speeding and he thought it might be a police car. So he's just being a little careful. And then he catches a glimpse of this vehicle that passes him again. And it's not a vehicle. It's not a car. It is a black blob in the dark. It's not a vehicle. It draws alongside him and then cuts in front of him and slows down. Woody is just in amazement at what he's looking at. It's not a car. It's not an automobile. It's shaped like an old-fashioned kerosene lamp with a chimney. It's flaring on both ends. It narrows down to a small neck and then it's big and bulgy in the center. Huh. It was charcoal gray. He slams on his brakes, and as the object turned crossways, it blocks the entire road. And he stops eight, ten feet from it. Like, now I want to pick a cool car sound, but that's 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 all you get. A door slides open on the side. A man steps out. Woody says he does not hear an audible voice. He's like, I just had a feeling. Like I knew what this man was thinking. He wanted me to roll down my window. 
The stranger was about five feet, 10 inches tall with long, dark hair combed straight back. His skin was heavily tanned. He looked, he looked like he was grinning. He was smiling. His arms crossed, his hands tucked under his armpits. He walked back to the panel truck and he was wearing a dark top coat. His arms were under his armpits? Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know who like does superstar. that. Like Superstar. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. Underneath his coat, Woody sees some kind of garment glistening a greenish material that almost looks metallic. Ooh. And he hears the voice. Do not be afraid. The grinning man did not speak out loud. Woody sensed the words. We mean you no harm. I come from a country much less powerful than yours. What is your name? Woody tells him in his head. And he says, my name is Cold. I sleep, breathe, and bleed even as you do. Mr. Cold nodded toward the lights of Parksburg in the distance and asked what kind of a place it was. Woody tried to explain it was this, it was a center for businesses and homes. It's a city. And in his world, Cold explained such places were called gatherings. While this telepathic conversation was taking place, the chimney-shaped object ascended and hovered some 40 or 50 feet above the road. Other cars came along the road and passed them. Cold tells Woody to report the encounter to the authorities, and he promises to come forward at a later date. He says he'll be back, basically. I'll be back. He doesn't actually say that. Okay. <laughs> After a few minutes of aimless... Nobody can say that but Arnold. Okay. Right. After a few minutes of aimless generalities, Cold announces that he will meet Woody again soon. The object descends, the door opens, Cold enters his lantern car, or whatever it is, it, it, his lantern hovercraft. It rises quickly and silently into the night. When Woody gets home, he's very distraught. His wife urges him to call the Parksburg police. They seem to accept his story without question, and they just asked him if he needed a doctor. So these police were either wow. super cool or they didn't give a shit about his story. And they were just like, <laughs> they're like, doctor. okay. Uh, and the thing is, this story, this is a multi-part story. Like this, this Woody who was singled out by Ingrid Cold, like has repeat experiences with this entity. But the thing is about this story is that people that were driving the same route that night confirmed that they saw him speaking to a man by the, on the side of the panel truck in the middle of the highway. Mrs. Frank wow. Huggins and her two children had reportedly stopped their own car and watched the object in the air soar low over the highway minutes after Woody watched it depart. Another young man said the object frightened his wits out and it, when it hovered over his car, it flashed a powerful, blinding light. Huh. Mr. Cold kept his promise. On November 4th, 
Derenberger, Woody Derenberger was riding with a coworker on Route 7 outside Parksburg when he felt a tingling sensation in his forehead. The thoughts from Mr. Cold began to spring full-blown into his mind. Cold explained that he was from the planet of Lanulos, which is in the galaxy of Ganymede. Lanulos, he said, was very like the Earth. It has flora, fauna, seasons. He said he was married to a, a lady named Kimmy and had two sons. Folks on Lanulos had a life expectancy of 125 to 175 years, or Earth years. Jeez. Naturally, he said there was no war, poverty, hunger, or misery on Lanulos. After the transmission and, was completed, and how did is this is the guy who said that Earth was much much stronger than his planet? Oh, he says, "We mean you no harm. I come from a country much less powerful." Yeah, that was it. What does that mean? So he's mean, insinuating though? that Earth is powerful. Does that but mean they live less- to be like 170? They have no poverty, no war, no famine, like. <laughs> yeah, but what like, is power? What I is guess? the source of power that he's referring to? That's a good question. Um, maybe there's just a lot more growth. It's weird. All of this is weird. Like him having to say that he's he's like he's basically saying like I'm I'm like you. I'm like mortal. Yeah, you know, right? We just live a little longer. I come from somewhere else. <laughs> Um, it's very specific though. Lanulos is the name of the place. His name is Kimmy. How does his he, wife's name? I guess like what you would just translate whatever this was in Lanulos speak to to English. Well, I think because it's um, te- telepathized that it's just like you understand it in whatever language you understand. Right. Like language isn't a barrier when it's tele- telepathy. I think. So apparently, according to Keel, the Indians must have known that there was craziness in West Virginia. Um, modern anthropologists worked out maps of the Indian occupancy of pre-Columbian America. Uh, according to languages spoken, the Shawnee and the Cherokee occupied the areas south and southwest. The Monacan settled to the east. The Erie and the Conestoga claimed the areas of north of West Virginia. Even the inhospitable deserts far west, they were all divided and occupied. And one spot on the map labeled uninhabited was West Virginia. Really? They just wouldn't go there. And it's fertile. Uh, It's heavily wooded. It's rich in game. Um, Apparently in West Virginia, there's also strange ancient ruins, uh, like these circular stone monuments, which prove that at some point in our ancient history, there were humans living there. Um, It it has Native American history, like more recent Native American history, where Chief Cornstalk and the Shawnees fought a battle there in 1760. There's a legend that Cornstalk apparently put a curse on the area before he fell. Um, But what's what's the deal with this area? Yeah. There's a... There's a... Go ahead, sir. It must be a big energy force, you know? There's, mm-hmm. yeah, there's power there. There's a doorway. There's whatever it is. It's like we, we're we not living there. It's spooky, yeah. you know? It has like this yeah. spooky 
uh, stigma to it for, for, for these tribes. Cherokees apparently had a tradition, according to Benjamin Smith's Barton's New Views of the Origins of the Tribes and Nations of America, written in 1798, that when huh. they migrated to Tennessee, they found that the region was inhabited by a weird race of white people who lived in houses and were apparently quite civilized. They had one problem, though. Their eyes were very large and sensitive to light. They could only see at night. The fierce Indians labeled these the moon-eyed people. You know, did the West Virginians move there to escape tormentors? And there are also still rumors of oddball, an oddball group of albino people that live in the hills of Kentucky and Tennessee. Oh, yeah. People even say mysterious people live in New Jersey. There's a lot of mysterious people in New Jersey, <laughs> for sure. That's Wrong even, turn. That's not even a question. But, okay, so I like this description, this Cherokee uh, legend of these white people that live in houses that are civilized, but are kind of weird. Like, yeah, the Native Americans are like, these people are weird. The Moon-Eyed people. <laughs> like, are do they have... Um, do they have thyroid eyes? You know, like what is <laughs> like the Native Americans just don't don't the the Cherokees maybe they in mean like uh uh what wait what albino people they would be ones who like can't come out during the day and would have really sensitive light sensitive eyes. Yeah, you know, for for this, like, what if it is a group of like outcasts, like albino people of this time that want to live together or something. Yeah. Or it could also be people from the future who are like, we need to park our, we need to park our situation somewhere. Let's just go. And there's nobody in West Virginia. Right. <laughs> Let's just go there. They're not going to understand our condos or anything. Just don't <laughs> show them an iPad and we'll be fine. Um, so that that brings us to what the hell is going on in Point Pleasant during this time. Point Pleasant during World War II is an area where high explosives were manufactured. There's also oh, the wow. McClintic Wildlife Station. It's an animal preserve and a bird sanctuary that was ripped up. Miles of underground tunnels. I can hear the scientists just being like, bird sanctuary, case closed. <laughs> uh, miles of underground. What is ripped up? How do you rip up a bird sanctuary? Ripped up with a vengeance. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Miles of underground tunnels were dug, linking camouflaged buildings and factories for their munitions. Hundreds of quote-unquote igloos were scattered across the fields in the woods. Huge concrete domes with heavy steel doors where they finished explosives, where finished explosives could be safely stored. Dirt and glass covered the domes so that from the air they had a harmless pastoral appearance. Scattered buildings linked by unimproved dirt roads with no suggestion of all the activity going on underground. After the war, most of the explosives were carted away. The factories were dismantled. And the entrances and exits of the tunnels were all plugged with concrete slabs. Some of the igloos oh, wow. were given to Mason Co County, um, and some were sold to the Trojan U.S. Powder Company, the LFC Chemical Company. Some were uh, leased to the American Cynamide. Um, so this is weird. Like this is a weird 
kind of history for this place to have. They made ammunition there. You know, again, we have strange appearance, uh, strange sightings appearing in areas related to human warfare, like, like a lot of the alien nuke stories. Um, Like what is, why? And, and what kind of, how scary is this place (laughs) with all these like little underground abandoned igloos that probably yeah. still have explosives in some of them. Dude, that's probably why most horror movies take place in West Virginia. It's like all about like inbred people and cave people and like <laughs> all the woods that you get lost in and Is that where is that where some of the famous horror movies take place? I think Wrong Turn takes place in West Virginia. Okay. That's a good question. I never but thought But I'm about sure it. there's other ones. So where the hills have eyes takes place in New Mexico, right? Oh like, yeah, that's a desert one. Yeah. And what about Texas Chainsaw Massacre? That wait. No, that, that was one, Texas. <laughs> that one is easy. Um. So Silence of the Lambs, um, Wrong Turn, Salvage, Silent Hill, uh, Mothman Prophecies, obviously. Silent Hill takes place in West Virginia? No, that's what it says. Wow. So we're going to sort of leave where we're going to pick up next time, which is with a couple stories that take place right at the beginning of this Mothman thing. So yeah. this is th- these are two couples that are hanging out together um, at 11.30 p.m., November 15th, 1966. Mr. and Mrs. Roger Scarberry and Mr. and Mrs. Steve Mallett were driving through um, the TNT area. They call it the TNT area um, <laughs> in the Scarsberry's 1957 Chevy. Wow, 1957 Chevy. As they pulled alongside the plant, Linda Scarsberry gasped. They all looked into the blackness and saw two bright red circles. They were about two inches in diameter, six inches apart. Roger slammed on his brakes. What is it, Mary Millette? Strikingly, <laughs> Keel says she's a strikingly attractive brunette. She is incredibly oh attractive. She is insanely attractive, Mary Millette. Is Keel in the car with them? No. But he's <laughs> he 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 writes these funny descriptions of people, which which some of them are cool. Like he writes this description of a baby that gets dropped, and he says that the baby was not hurt. It was more offended. And I was like, that's cool. <laughs> like, cause like babies do have complicated, complex emotions. So yeah, but let's just focus on how attractive Mary is. So Mary is super right. attractive and she says, what is it? Uh, she crashed in the back seat. The lights bobbed away from the building and they saw that these, these red lights were attached to some kind of an animal. And Roger says it was shaped like a man, but it was bigger, Roger said. Roger says it was shaped like a man, but bigger. Maybe it was six and a half feet tall. It had big wings folded against its back. It was those eyes that got us, Linda declared. It had two big eyes like automobile reflectors. They were hypnotic, Roger said. For a minute, we could only stare at it and couldn't take our eyes off it. It was grayish in color and walked on sturdy man-like legs. It turned slowly, shuffled toward the door of the generator. 
plant. Oh, God. Which was a jar hanging off its hinges. Let's get out of here, Steve yelled. Roger stepped on the gas and shot through the gates and spun onto the exit road, headed for Route 62. Suddenly they saw it, or another one like it, standing on a small hill near the road. As they hurtled past it, it spread its bat-like wings and took off straight in the air. My God, it's following us, the couple in the backseat cried. Roger swung its 62 on wheels. We're doing 100 miles an hour, Roger said. And that bird <sighs> kept right with us. And it wasn't even flapping its wings. Panic-stricken, the red eyes still burning in their minds, they went directly to the Mason County Courthouse, charged into the sheriff's office, and they told their story to Deputy Millard Halstead. Halstead says they've never been in any trouble, and they were really scared that night. And he's like, I took them seriously. He's like, I've known them all their lives, basically. And he's like, you know, he, he hopped into the patrol car and, and he went out there. I forgot to mention this. Their dog was with them and their dog just oh, gets yeah. lost. <gasps> no, so he the, was in the car? So the officer, I think they'd gotten out or something. Oh. And the dog gets completely lost. So the, so the officer goes out there to look for the dog. There's no sign of it. There's no sign of the creature. Um, he switches on his police radio. And then suddenly a loud, a loud signal blasts through his speaker and drowns out the voice of the police dispatcher in Point, oh, wow. in Point Pleasant. He said it was like a loud garble, like a record or a tape recording being played at a very high speed. So the so when this story came in, and this is before John Keel was in the picture, this is right when this was beginning, Mary Heyer sent the story out to the AP Wire that evening, and the bird, quote unquote, was the number one story in Ohio Valley. Wait, was um, the Mary the in the car, the strikingly beautiful Mary? Was that Mary Hire or different Mary? <laughs> no, it was a different Mary. Okay. Is, <laughs> just so we're clear, Mary Millette was extremely oh, right. Mary beautiful. Uh, <laughs> Mary Hire, uh, he describes as a stout woman in her 50s. Um, right. November 16th, 1966, three years to the day since John Flaxton and his companions had seen the winged monster in Kent, England, you have this situation brewing in Point Pleasant. Long lines of cars start circling the TNT area because people hear about this and they want to go see it. They want to go investigate it. They want to go check it out. Men bristling with guns surround the old power plant, poking into every bush. Like people are hunting for this thing, thinking that they can get to it. You know, there wasn't much to do in Point Pleasant, a town of 6,000 people, 22 churches, no bar rooms. So the Mothman was like a great time for these people. Suddenly there was excitement in the town. It's very like- Excitement in their life. It's very cool because the movie is like a modern movie. But I'm thinking of like these old, like these old cars, you know, like from the 50s, like these, these couples out there, these teenagers. I'm picturing like the, the setting from like the Zodiac- Combined <laughs> with the scariness of the Mothman, um, yeah, as as what this kind of felt like at that time. Um, they people started seeing like red lights move around the sky in that area, um, but few of the monster hunters paid attention to this kind of stuff. Um, Mister, and then and then. So these sightings start 
issue pop up a lot now. Mr. and Mrs. Raymond Wamsley and Mrs. Marcella Bennett and her baby daughter, Tina, studied it, puzzled. They study this this thing they see in the sky. They say it's not an airplane. They couldn't figure out what it was. Mrs. Bennett said they were on the way to visit the Ralph Thomases, who lived near a bungalow back among the igloos. My God, can you imagine living among these creepy igloos? Mr. Ah. Thomas was the superintendent of the Trojan U.S. operations there. Um, Virginia, his wife, was a slender, gentle woman, blessed or cursed with a second sight. So she had accurately predicted numerous accidents and local events that have occurred in this area. So you cut to another group of couples that are hanging out. It's couples night all over Point Pleasant. Mr. and Mrs. Raymond Wamsley, Mrs. Marcella Bennett and her baby Tina, they're on their way to visit the Ralph Thomases who live near a bungalow among the igloos. Mr. Thomas is the superintendent of that company that we mentioned, the Trojan U.S. Operations. His wife, Virginia, is blessed with a second sight, Keel says. He says that she has predicted accidents before. She's got like abilities, like supernatural abilities. But she's careful not to talk about it too much. Only her friends know about her abilities. She's deeply religious. She goes to church every evening. She doesn't like bragging about what she can do or what it is, but she tells her close friends. On this night that they go out to meet their friends, so when they get to the Thomases, they find only three of the Thomas children are home. They find Ricky, Connie, and Vicky at home. In the distance, they hear some trigger-happy hero firing a rifle around the power plant. And so so there's like chaos going on. There's people hunting for this thing. These couples are hanging out. They get home together. To, they, they, the Thomases see their kids, and they hear a gunshot outside. They go outside. They're looking for their other kid. Suddenly, a figure stirs in the darkness behind a parked car. It seems as if it had been lying down. So this thing was lying down or it looked like it was lying down. It rises up slowly. It's big, it's gray, it's bigger than a man. It's got these terrible glowing red eyes. And Yikes. no one gets so to see this. Maybe got shot all, or something? They're all hunting somewhere else for this creature and the creature just oh. like literally popping up here, popping up there in front of people uh-huh. who, who aren't looking for it. You know, yeah. it's really weird. It almost seems like a show of some kind in a weird way. Like, Like, why is it? Like the, like the the story where the couple initially sees it and they drive away and then they see it on a hill, like it yeah. seems like it's like just like this show, this weird show that's like messing with them. Um, or there's multiple. So there's just a lot of mini sightings, and so we're gonna wrap it up with these little mini sightings and and maybe one more story, which is basically like it's Mothman fever. In Point Pleasant. Across from the Ohio River, directly opposite of the TNT area, a music teacher is hanging out in her kitchen. Mrs. Roy Gross was wakened. Uh, can you imagine a time where people refer to you as your husband's name? Yeah, I hate that. Isn't that weird? Ugh. That's not a thing anymore, is it? I hope not. Um, okay, so this music teacher is chilling in her kitchen. She hears the dog barking. It's 4.45 a.m., God only knows what Miss Roy Gross is doing in the kitchen at 4.45 a.m. She's up to no good with some peanut butter sandwiches, probably. It's the morning of November 17th, 1966. It was a little bit weird for her pet to be, like, looking out of the kitchen window. And so she looks up and she sees an enormous object hovering on a treetop. 
it's the size of a small house and it's brilliantly illuminated. It seems to be divided into sections, glowing with dazzling bright red and green lights. So she sees like a UFO. She sees yeah, right. something like wild. Maybe like she yeah. sees like the freaking Mothman dispatcher or something. Ah, like the, or injured Cold's vehicle. <laughs> the Lantern Express. Um, yeah. There's a 17-year-old boy driving down Route 7, not far from Mrs. Groza's home. These are all connected. In Cheshire, Ohio, suddenly he sees a huge bird uh, dive at his car and pursue him for a mile or so. There are two wow. firemen, um, two firemen from Point Pleasant, Paul Yoder and Benjamin Enochs, were in the TNT area on the 18th when they encounter a giant bird with red eyes. It's definitely a bird, they said flatly, but it was huge. We'd never seen anything like it. You have sightings in Mason, Lincoln, Logan, Kanawha, Nicholas counties. People were traveling hundreds of miles to see this thing. And it was just popping up everywhere, everywhere. Wow. And not where people were looking. I mean, are we talking about a family, an army? (sighs) Is it, how many little, is it, is it like a program that this other entity has where it's just like dispatching them like you would in a video game? Right. You know, just like dispatching different ones and different designs and stuff. Um, so where can we where can we park this supernatural lantern vehicle of ours for this episode? This this is such a complex book. It see Keel is not just giving us any other any normal writer would have just written a book about Mothman, just ignored all the mm-hmm. black men in black stuff, would have not done their research to see if this had occurred before, probably like he gives you this all encompassing take on everything. And now, now when we get to the middle of this, of this book, do we, do we get to see like what happens to Point Pleasant? What happens to Keel? The silver bridge was an eye bar chain suspension bridge built in 1928 named for the color of its aluminum paint. It carried U.S. Route 35 over the Ohio River, connecting Point Pleasant, West Virginia, with Gallipolis, Ohio. On December 15, 1967, the Silver Bridge collapses under the weight of rush hour traffic. Rush hour traffic. Yikes. Resulting in the deaths of 46 people. Two of the victims were never found. Investigation of the wreckage pointed to the cause of the collapse being the failure of a single eye bar in a suspension chain due to a small defect 0.1 inches deep. This is how important an engineer's job is. This is crazy. Analysis showed that the bridge was carrying much heavier loads than it had originally been designed for, and it was poorly maintained. God, with, with the way the infrastructure is in this country, I hope that's not like a thing that will happen again, you know? Yeah, right. Um, scary stuff it's a it's a devastating finale to this story in a way and and it's interesting how the book we're we're heading in that direction it's kind of brilliant right because it's nonfiction. Mm-hmm. it's not fiction so we know that this is going to happen but Keel is like wait a second 
let me tell you about all this other crazy shit that's happening yeah, yeah. around this, after this, before this. Let me tell you how I fit into the story. 7.45 a.m. at the Edward Christensen family. The entire family is named after him. Seven people, right? They're driving southward on the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey, just north of Mayville, when a bright red, green, and white object comes careening out of the sky and disappears directly in front of them. They thought it was an airplane. Um, They thought an airplane had crashed next to them when suddenly they see a large glowing sphere rise above the treetops. They, they thought it was like the plane on fire. They didn't even know what they were looking at. It began to move. <sighs> suddenly they realized this is not a fire. Fires don't move. And it was some kind of a flying sphere. It executes a sharp turn, comes towards the witnesses, passed directly over their heads. And it's completely silent the whole time. So wow. not an aircraft that we know of can do this. As it approaches their position, three powerful headlights become visible in the front of the object. The lights appear to be elongated, and they pass from the top of the craft to the underside of the craft, and then the object disappears northward. The witnesses experience a strong emotional reaction. Mrs. Arlene Christensen and her sister, Gwendolyn Martino, become hysterical alarming their children. Like they completely lost their cool with their kids. Two of the youngsters begin to cry. They all return to the car and drive home to Wildwood Crest. Um, They phone the Air Air Force base there. Um, When they were telling the story, they couldn't remember the name of the base or the officers they talked to because they were so hysterical. Um, Each one of them was interviewed. So each one of them was interviewed by four officers at the time that this happened. Um, so this is in Jersey, right? And this will give oh. you this. This is connected to one of the couples that we discussed because they they filed this police report. They talked to people at the Air Force. They 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 just start. They're they're interviewed by four different officers. I mean, I think at some point the government gets involved. And starts mm-hmm. asking questions. So Miss Martino, who spent the night at the Christiansons, was preparing for bed when suddenly that night she hears a radio signal and a series of dots and dashes. She knew her brother-in-law had a portable CB. The radio was on. So she just goes to turn it off. She thought he had left it on. He and his wife were already in bed and asleep, but she didn't understand the radio and didn't want to tamper with it. She continued to hear the signals as she enters the bedroom and awakened them. They were unable to hear the signals, and the radio was off. The signals faded, and Miss Marine, Mrs. Martino went to bed baffled. R- huh. Roger and Linda Scarsberry are a couple from Point Pleasant, were living in a house trailer at the time of their Mothman sighting. In the week that followed their sighting, they were suddenly plagued by strange sounds. Beeps, loud garbled noises, speeding up like a phonograph record. They could not locate the source of the sounds inside or outside. Wouldn't that drive you crazy to hear that kind of stuff? How scary that would be? (laughs) Yeah, and it's not coming from anything? They They can't find where it's coming from. Yeah, so people are trying to find this Mothman. They can't find him. They're trying to put cameras on him. They can't put cameras on him. And he's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And we're going to end with this story. And this story is November 26th. 
A housewife in St. Albans, a suburb of Charleston, West Virginia, found the Mothman standing on her front lawn. Miss Ruth Foster was one of the very few witnesses who has claimed to seen his face. Standing beside on the lawn, beside the porch, Miss Foster said, it was tall, with big red eyes that popped out of its face. My husband is six feet one. This bird looked about the same height or a little shorter. It had a funny little face, she said. It didn't have a beak. She said, all I saw were those big poppy red eyes. I screamed and ran back into the house and my brother-in-law went out to take a look. So that evening, it encored in St. Alban. Sheila Kane, 13, and her younger sister were walking home from the store when they saw something standing next to the local junkyard. It was gray with white and big red eyes. It was gray and white with big red eyes. Oh, this was a white one, like a fuzzy, cute one. Uh, it must have been seven feet tall, taller than a man. I screamed and ran home, and f- it flew up in the air and followed us part of the way. Aerodynamically, Mothman was ill-suited for flight. A creature larger than a big man and therefore weighing an excess of 200 pounds would require more than a 10-foot wingspan to get aloft. And large birds take off by running along the ground and flapping their wings, wings frantically. Kiel says that his favorite bird, a goonie bird of the Pacific, runs back and forth desperately trying to build up enough airspeed to fly, which is which is adorable. Um, <laughs> so one thing I'm gonna so one thing we'll end with is this idea that Kiel uh, has, which is that um, he, ha- he so so I think I think throughout this episode we've realized that like this is not just one thing. There's like a lot of different things that are sort of connected here. What's the yeah. connection? What's the connection between cold and the Mothman, between one kind of Mothman and another? What's the connection between the the men in black that are there and the and the the other men in black? You know, there's different, there's like different kinds, you know? Right. And why can't any of them eat jello? You know? <sighs> but you gotta drink it. So he says, and I quote, I have come to realize that we have been observing complex forces. I have come to realize that we have been observing complex forces which have always been an essential part of our immediate environment. In think, instead of thinking of extraterrestrials, he adopts the concept of ultraterrestrials. Ultra. Beings and forces that coexist with us but are on another time frame, Kiel says. He says the flying saucer and extraterrestrial visitants are not real in the sense that a 747 is real. We were talking about 747s. He says they are transmogrifications of energy under the control of some extra-dimensional intelligence. This intelligence, he says, controls important events by manipulating specific human beings through the phenomena of mystical illumination. So that's like another way to say the whole puppeteer thing. It's a tr- yeah, it's trans- like holographic or something. exactly transmogrifications of energy under the control of some unknown extra-dimensional intelligence, and it controls important events by manipulating people at different times with mystical illumination. Very cool, right? Uh, next time we're going to get into the more of the town itself, more of John Keel's role, 
with the characters of the town and we are going to try to discover more of we're going to go through more of his theories about what's going on and i think we've got an all-encompassing look at this phenomenon and how it kind of relates to ufos and the different characters involved we've really set the stage with everything and there's the mothman prophecies and then there's also the book that he wrote um, after the Mothman prophecies, which is it, really it's an extension of this book that I want to cover, which is called The Eighth Tower. Um, and it has to do, oh, yeah. it's got a cool, cool title. And it has to do with what are these ultra terrestrials? Like, what are, what are they? You know? Thank you for dining with us. Hold those cosmic appetites for next time. Reach out to us on Twitter and follow us on Instagram at Cosmic Feast. 